Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Chasing Discomfort podcast. I am very pleased and very grateful to be joined for James Pratt on the other side of the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, coming all the way from California, USA. James, thank you, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. Before we dive into your journey, what does it mean for you to chase discomfort and why? Oh, brother, the truth is I never really had to chase it much. I, uh, I mean, my dad was a bear hunter, so I started hunting bear early and uh, wrestling. And so uh, I moved pretty much straight from that into, you know, being incarcerated and being a criminal of various stripes. So discomfort was pretty much always there. I never really had to go looking for it. But uh, of course, you know, as we know, the type of discomfort that you're chasing or that, you know, you're embracing tends to determine a lot of uh, what goes on after the fact beyond that. But uh, <clears throat> no, for me, it's like specifically, I usually chase goals. Like, for me, the, the draw has always been freedom, like uh, not even in some like patriotic or a specific term, but just like the freedom of the way I live my life. I, I just I love that feeling. I love being in the mountains. I love the way I feel on the 40th mile of an ultra marathon. I love feeling broken away and detached from all the, you know, the things that uh, I don't want to say that make you unhappy that just, you know, the unfulfilled existence and cycles that a lot of us get pulled into. And so anything that gives me a break from that, I've always been really, uh, really excited and motivated by. And I've been, as a result, willing to endure a lot of, you know, discomfort to get there. <laughs> but discomfort was never for me the, specifically the goal. It was more the mechanism of growth or the price that you pay. And uh, so as such, I try not to really, like I like to say, I just, I, I don't give it currency. Like, you know, if something is going to be hard or uncomfortable, but it's something I want to do or something that needs to get done. And it, it doesn't really matter if it's going to hurt, if it's going to be, take a long time, if it's going to be free. Like, you, you just, you got to do what you got to do, you know. Love it. So, bear hunting. We we don't have bears in the UK, or if we do, they're unfortunately for them locked up in captivity in zoos. Yeah, not um, anymore, huh? And <laughs> now, long time ago, maybe. Um, we have deer hunts. We have game hunts for birds like partridge and pheasant, etc. But um, I just love to get a snapshot, and if you could guide us through what a bear hunt, or if there is a typical bear hunt, what it looks like for you. Sure, I can give you the broad strokes. So growing up, uh, we hunted them with hounds. And actually, we should thank you guys because we got most, about three quarters of our hounds came from old English uh, fox hunting stock that had been bred up and mixed with, you know, wild or larger American dogs. But because they're really game, they, you know, they're good at following game, they have good scent, and they're a uh, <laughs> good prey drive. You know, they, they lent a lot of good blood to the bear hunting dogs that we used. And uh, so with that, it was pretty simple. You know, you'd cruise around. There's various methods for finding a scent, but the bear, you know, the dogs would find a relatively fresh scent and you just get on after it. And that's, I mean, just trying to keep up with a pack of dogs over mountains and creeks and ravines and, you know, every type of landscape you can think about. And so that forges, that's harder than anything I've done, even just really like running ultra marathons. <clears throat> it's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, it is cold, it's wet, it's hungry. Nothing ever works out the way it's supposed to. And then, at the end of it all, you end up with a bear that's three, two, three, four, five, six hundred pounds that you now have to carry back. And while a lot of people will break, you know, cut up that, you know, quarter, you know, essentially do like a field butchering of the animal and break it down into quarters and pack it out. <coughs> my, uh, my dad was an old school bear hunter, didn't believe in that. He, he thought the old school bear hunters thought you, you left only a gut pile. So, you, you know, you leave the gut pile, you got the bear. 
and you essentially tie a rope to each of its paws and put one or two men on each rope and just haul that thing out over miles of terrain. And like, if you get really, really, really lucky, you might come to a Creek and be able to just float it down the Creek, you know, down uh, and let, let water do some of the work. But generally if you're carrying, you're dragging uphill, downhill over broken ground shale, you know? So it's just, it's just brutal. And it's one of those things that it's like, you'll ask yourself 400 times in the course of a bear hunt. Like, why do I do this? I'm never doing that. You'll swear to, you'll, you'll, you'll make an absolute, I swear to whatever God you worship that you're never doing this again. It doesn't matter how much anyone pays you, nothing. You will never come back here. You'll never do this again. The second you get that bear back, you get a couple hours sleep, a shower and a meal and you're just, you're calling everyone back. Like, all right, when are we going out again, man? Like it's, you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's one of those weird things. And uh, it's the most uh, discomfortable thing I've ever done in my life. And uh, that grew up, you know, I started doing it from a very young age, which, you know, it's hard to imagine that didn't, you know, kind of form some, you know, create certain impulses that led to me being the way that I am. Um, I wrestled also as a kid. Wrestling is really hard. I think it's it's a great thing for kids to do, even if they have no aspiration for being a grappler or a martial artist or carrying on. I think it's great. I think every kid should wrestle for a year just to experience what that's like mentally and also to give them a little confidence. And, you know, if your kid wrestles for a year, it's probably not going to be bullied again, even for the rest of their childhood. So it's like, you know, I think it's uh, these things in childhood tend to be character building, but nowadays, uh, especially in California, I don't hunt here much. Uh, personally, myself, I tend to hunt Oregon and Idaho more, but they don't allow hound hunting here anymore. And, uh, which is just as fine. I don't have hounds. It's, there's a whole, it's a whole lifestyle that goes into it, but I, I just hunt with the bow now. So I'll go out and track them a variety of manners, uh, or in a variety of manners and Oregon, you can't bait them or use hounds. So it's a lot of, uh, you find how they're getting around, uh, specifically bear like to move around kind of like us on the easiest paths between two points. They like to stay really far away from people and settlements. So, I like to hunt the old fire and logging roads that have been blocked off or discarded or abandoned or now overgrown that the bear have adopted as like their freeway, just kind of moving around up there. Um, I'll hit those, I'll glass. I also, you can also call like a, you have a little call that sounds like a wounded deer that you got to kind of be careful of those because they'll bring in wolf packs and they'll bring in mountain lions and other stuff too. So you just kind of got to be sure that you're ready to deal with whatever comes if it's not a bear. But, um, and then up in Idaho, you can bait them. So it's like, it's not, it's, it's not easy. Their, their sense of smell is about seven times that of like a good dog. So like you can't really just like put out bait and wait and just wait for them to come up and shoot them over it. But you can put out baits and if they get one, you know, if they get, they start hitting on one of your baits, you can track them off that and follow them, see where they're going, where they're moving and kind of set up an operation based off that. But it's all about just getting in the same spot, tracking them and getting a shot because they are, they're wily and they're in their home environment, you know? When you talk back then about wrestling, what the the image that come to mind was um, the the name forget escapes me now, but the guy from the UFC that his dad used to make him wrestle Bet Khabib, yeah, he used to yeah. make him wrestle bears in in the in his backyard. So, um, yep, I'm guessing you've never wrestled a bear before. I have not. I have not. I've been closer to some. I knew. Uh... <laughs> He's long dead now, but I knew an old timer. He was he was old in my dad's time who had a, a bear that he kept like a pet bear. And he would uh, he kept him, you know, either in a like a, a giant kennel or chained up. And then he would have a, he'd use that bear to train his dogs. So he'd release it, 
you know, let the dogs go half hour, hour, however later they'd chase it down. The bear would climb a tree. They'd pull the dogs in instead of shooting the bear. He'd, you know, coax it down one way or another. The bear would come in they'd go back home. He'd feed it marshmallows and that would be that. But that's, that's the only time I've seen that. And I never wrestled that bear. <laughs> Have you ever come across a bear sort of unexpected or, you know, really had any close encounters or hairy moments with them out in the field? Uh, I've had one or two, but it was sort of thing. I can't really say it was too hairy because it was one of those things like we'd surprise each other and they'd be just as spooked as I was. And so, you know, it wasn't like I uh, I stumbled on a mother with cubs and had a revenant scene or anything, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, survival sagas, I'm sorry to say, or grateful to say. But uh, yeah, I've had, I've had, you know, one time, like just almost straight, we just kind of almost ran into each other coming down like an elk path. And then uh, uh, he was, I mean, not super close, right? 20 30 meters up but still close enough uh and then another time i didn't actually see them but we heard each other i i got distracted and made some noise and i heard like a a grunt and right about that time i could smell him like the wind shifted towards me and i could i could just smell like gamey bear you know and uh and then i heard brush breaking and there was a split second when my heart stopped because i didn't know if the brush was breaking towards me or away from me and i didn't know which way he was running and then but as like the sounds moved away from me i was like unclenched uh but no, nothing, you know, I definitely never had to come to grips with one, thankfully. And I'm intrigued. What does bear meat taste like? <laughs> it depends what the bear's been eating. Like if you shoot a high desert bear that's been eating carrion, it's going to taste like shit. Um, but like, uh, so let's say in Idaho in the spring when I'm hunting them, they're eating mostly morel mushrooms, wild onions, you know, maybe the odd elk calf or so. And then in fall, they're eating mostly berries. Uh, so those, those bears taste really good. You know, you got to get them clean and butchered right. Any meat will go bad or gamey if you mess up the butchering field field butchering process. But uh, bear meat's good, man. It's good. Depends on the cut like anything else. You can't just take like a, a chunk of rump meat out, fry it up without any seasoning or preparation, and then declare that it tastes bad like a lot of people do. But um, that's true with anything, you know. And how long do these hunts last for? Uh, longest one I've been on pretty much went about a day, a little over a day. But they tend like, well... I mean, you'd be out in the field. I've been out in the field for, you know, days to even a couple of weeks. But uh, as far as like the active, the actual, like from when the dogs catch a scent, uh, you know, you could be done. You know, you could shoot a bear. If dogs catch a scent around dawn, you could be have a bear treed and shot by late morning. You know, best case scenario, packed out and be, you know, be back to camp by 3, 4 p.m. But I've also been on them. I mean, as a kid, I was on some that went, you know, you'd start it pre-dawn and you might not get back to camp till the next dawn and that's not one minute of sleep and that's not <laughs> anything approaching a real meal you know just whatever you got on you and that's the whole time just moving under load against resistance uphill so you know they're, they're they can be they're, they're grueling affairs of endurance for sure and most of them taking place at elevation which most people aren't uh even me acclimated to that's one of the reasons i, I run is uh because i know that you know i live at roughly sea level and i hunt anywhere from four to seven thousand feet elevation and uh i so i just that's one reason i run so much is to build an aerobic base that you know it's like you, there's no way to prepare for that there's no way to fully acclimate to that unless you're at elevation there's no training methods to replicate that effectively and so it's just all you can really do is develop such a massive aerobic base that once you take that massive hit you can see still have enough still have enough juice to keep ticking yeah and then obviously you rely on your strength to get that bear back yeah. out and home yeah a lot of weighted carries and stuff like that so i think before we sort of get any further i'd love to dive into your journey 
Um, if you could give us like a bit of a high level overview from, you know, born and bred, raised, etc., and then up, up to the current day. Sure. Um, I was born in the smallest mountain range in the world, uh, the Buttes, the Sutter Buttes. Um, I grew up, my dad was a sheriff's deputy. My mom stayed at home. I grew up, you know, doing all the typical country boy stuff. Hunting bear was always a favorite. Um, pretty much every weekend, because even if we didn't have a bear, we had already filled our bear tag. There was someone else in the group that didn't, and we just go run hounds on bear and then not kill anything, you know, just to train to keep the dogs in shape. So it was a pretty big part of my uh, my life and upbringing. Um, <clears throat> there was just some family drama that went on later on, and I kind of drifted off track in my teen years and got into drugs and crime, and that pretty much ruled my life from, what, 16, 17 till. Uh, about 31. So I've been clean for four years. What's, what's the date? Oh, so in three days, I will be have been clean for exactly four years. Um, oh, so, oh, thanks, brother. But uh, so, you know, uh, that that literally took up most of my life. And then when I uh, <laughs> I got clean was it was just a weird epiphany, man. I woke up one day and I just realized that like I was the one in control <clears throat> and uh, that it was, you know, if making poor decisions had got me to where I was. It was only logical that making better decisions could carry me somewhere else. And uh, I mean, it just seems simple, but when you're so twisted up and lost in your own mind, it's not always apparent, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it was just, I've always had kind of an extreme personality for better or worse. So, but once I made that decision, it was, I mean, it was literally overnight to the point that most of the people around me were suspicious. My family members were suspicious for like six months. Like, you know, what's he getting at? What's he trying to, you know, why is he trying, you know what I mean? This is so like, you know, and eventually they realized like, oh my God, because it was just, you know, immediately up every day. I had no idea, like no idea what I was doing compared to now. I mean, more than most people, but I'd get up at four every day. I started doing just basic calisthenics in my living room. I didn't have a gym membership. I didn't have any, I was just renting like a shitty room. And you know what I mean? It wasn't like I had nothing. You know, I was half a step above homeless. Uh, and that was only because my mom was paying for that room that I was in. And, uh, so I just woke up every morning. I'd get up at four just as a matter of discipline. And I started doing just basic calisthenics. I really didn't know much of what I was doing. At the time, I was just doing like my old jailhouse routine, which I've come to now realize is pretty legit. But I, at the time, I couldn't complete it. I couldn't do even a small fraction of it. And I couldn't run. I remember I was a heavy cigarette smoker. I tried to go running. didn't make it 100 yards. And uh, so it was, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I literally didn't make it 100 yards. Um but I started doing calisthenics. I started jogging. I started meditating just to freestyle. And there was an old Sam Harris uh, guided meditation on YouTube that I must have listened to that literally thousands of times. Um, I just, you know, for free, just the 10, 20 minutes every, you know, some point in the day when I started to feel overwhelmed and I'd go to that. And so I just ended calisthenics. I ran, I meditate every day. A little bit, a few months later, a little, little bit down the line, I started doing jujitsu. And that, you know, that was another thing that, uh, you know, another exploration and development of the self, both physically and mentally, you know, as far as your ego goes and just your mind and how you approach it intellectually as well. And then that, I don't know, man, that led to one thing. Eventually I started running ultras. I'm not even sure why I started, it just kind of appealed to me. I, I mean, the freedom has always been my reason. And that's still to this day, the biggest appeal to me if I do something like that. Like it's, it's, it's never, I'm never trying to be super hardcore. I'm never trying to prove any points. I, I just like, it's, I mean, maybe it's a drug, but I'm trying, I love that feeling that, that euphoria and freedom that I get when I'm, I'm so far away and everything is so, 
so clear yeah it's so far away and so you know what i mean it's like a quasi a psychedelic state almost it's like I've, I've always described as running with one foot in this world and one foot in another world and that's what it feels like to me and i love it you know hunting's not different it's a beautiful description because um we've actually had a guy on the podcast a couple of weeks back and we was talking about flow state oh and, yeah and how to get into that flow state and i've had moments where um i'd be running out in the woods headphones on and I just lose 10 or 15 minutes. Like, oh, I couldn't, oh, yeah. couldn't tell you what happened. Obviously, I know I'm running. It feels effortless. Um, it's almost like you're caressing the ground, you know, you're, you're like you're dancing. And exactly. you sort of, you, you come round and you think, like, for, for years, like, I played football as a youngster, like soccer. Um, and I always used to say, oh, I hate running. I hate running because when, like, if I wasn't chasing a ball, I'd get bored. But, when I actually go out running, I've, I've worked out now after doing it for the last sort of three or four years that I get to, I feel like a world champion for the first 10 minutes. Then I feel like my rib cage is going to blow up. And then once my brain understands that I'm, I'm not giving up and I'm going to keep running, I sort of calm down and I get into the groove. Um, the, the, where I'm going with this is that like it, once you get to a level of fitness where you can sort of push on for sort of half marathon, like 13, 14, 15 plus miles, and you yeah. get to that effortless flow state. For me, um, running's become like a, almost like a therapy. You know, I, I think of um, like people that have passed, like family members, and it's a very up and down sort of emotion. And you, you go from like running high, where you feel like you can take on the world, you go for like, the, the emotions like you feel like you can barely do another step and everything's screaming at you to stop and it's killing you so i wanted to ask you you know w when you're out on these big big ultra marathon runs you know what goes through your head what's the sort of emotional roller coaster if you can describe that for us i think you did a i mean i you just an excellent job of describing my experience everything that you're talking about uh for me uh, the way i've been wired i've always had kind of like a, a cinematic dramatic uh I don't know inflection in my mind the way my mind generates things and so for me it's like those doubts and fears and insecurities are uh, they become anthropomorphic they become you know actual demons pretty quick and i like the deeper i go i'm not sure <clears throat> how much you very you know how how much you've uh, experienced kind of the more semi-hallucinatory side effects of things but it feels like just the deeper i go into that and the, the more that effect starts to take over my mind the more these things become real and some defiance is always my my resting state i uh i don't know why but it's i i make the decision then and there that this is going to happen whatever the cost and like we talked about earlier like once you set not even with the goal but like once you set your mind to the destination you just don't leave for me i don't leave possibility for anything but that to happen um I make the decision that I'm willing to die to get it done. And as that may sound dramatic, but it's not about dying or being tough or, you know, getting your goggins on or any of that. It's just, it's about committing completely. It's about being all in. And if that, if you're struggling on the cliff with that demon and you can't overcome him, then the, the next best thing you can do is just grab a hold of him in a bear hug and jump over the edge, you know? And once you make that leap and you commit to it completely, it doesn't matter what happens, man, because that's when you're free. You know what I mean? And that's 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 when I tell myself, this is my time. I'm not going anywhere. And the colder, the hungrier, and the more this hurts, the deeper we get into those territories, the more I'm at home. You know, I come from hell and I'll go back someday and that's fine with me. 
So a friend of mine who um, is just an, an absolute weapon, like he'll just disappear in the middle of the night and go and do a 50k run. But he, he says to me, like, when I've got demons to shake, that's when I go. And he just disappears. And like you say, it's that freedom. It's that release of tension, stress. And it, it, it acts as like a reset. Um, and I, I suppose similarly, really, to your time when you're out in the wilderness hunting. Like, um, we've just recently come back from a trip, uh, a neighbouring country to England, Wales. It's the second highest mountain in the UK, Snowdonia. And we, there was like an event where you sort of run up, you summit, and you come back down to sea level. Um, but you just, you know, being at the top of that mountain, and, and thankfully for us, we had fantastic visibility that day. But we looked down, we can see all the lakes, and you just feel so sort of insignificant to this mountain that's been here for thousands of thousands of years and will continue to be there for thousands more. Um, and it just, for me, it just like being in nature and doing something tough just acts as a total reset. You know, all the little bits and bobs that you stress about, worry about, or, you know, argue with yourself or a spouse, whatever it might be, like it just totally kills that. And uh, for me, like, it, have you heard of the term masogi? I don't think so, actually, no. So it's this sort of um, ancient Japanese um, culture. And basically the, the, the whole part of a masogi is that it has, you have to have 50% chance of failure and 50% chance of success. So it's not like if you was training for a marathon and you got up to 22 miles, you'd be you know, within a good shout that you're going to complete it. It would be getting up from the couch and, and running a marathon you know, first sort of bang. So um, I try to cycle in a couple of masogis a year. Um, the guys that I'm doing it with, we've planned a, like a 24-hour sort of max distance shuffle. I like stuff like that, yeah. That's great. Just, just because there is obviously a limitation on it with time. But, you know, if we have to walk for an hour, run for an hour, crawl for an hour, whatever it might be, you know, we're just going to we're gonna get it done. And I just wondered if, um, you know, I could get some advice from you on your, on your time out there in, in the wilderness up against nature. Like what would be your biggest sort of advice for uh, something like that well a couple things the first is just to remember above and all you're gonna be fine like you're my you know you're gonna be fine it doesn't you know your brain will start the tired more tired you get it's not even doubt and insecurity it's just like basic fears like oh what if i roll my ankle out here alone and then i just starve to death you know what i mean like all these things but you're gonna be fine Human beings have been doing this for a long time. The Spartans fought for days, you know what I mean, without food and water, broken wing. You know, on the last day, they didn't even have weapons. They're fighting with their hands and teeth. You and I can figure out how to finish some endurance events and, you know, not die. Um, so there's that. Remember, you know, there's that. And then the thing is, you got to, like, ironically, as much as these things boost your confidence and potentially even your ego, you have to abandon all, everything that you think about in terms of what you should or shouldn't do. Think about these, think about it objectively. So I get a lot of people that will come and they'll, they'll want to run. Let's say they want to run like a, a short ultra marathon, like a 31 mile. And they'll come into it with this mindset that they have to do it a certain way, almost like they have to, like they're still being controlled by their, their physical education teacher from seventh and eighth grade. Like, and so they'll get, They'll get, they'll run the, you know, they'll run the first 10 miles either super enthusiastically or something and burn themselves out. Or they'll get, you know, thinking like, oh, I got to keep a certain pace. Or they'll get what's even more common is people will get to uh, inclines. They'll come to like, you know, like say a trail race or something. They'll get to inclines 
and they'll try to just run up the incline as opposed to like doing like the power hiking, which is what, you know, on, the, on ultra marathons, you don't want to burn your quads out in the first 10, 20 miles by trying to spike up hills. You just, you start, you power walk. As soon as it levels off, you get back to your, you know, your stride. But if you try to maintain your stride, just up a straight incline, you're going to burn out your quads. And ironically, you're going to let yourself off the hook easy because, you know, once your quads fail, you're not going any further. And then your rest of you never gets tested and, you know, pulled into deep waters. So I would say abandon those ideas and more, more hyper specifically for this, if you get to any steep inclines, don't feel the need to just, you know, sprint up them. Uh, go ahead, power hike, get your composure, stay calm, Re use that as an opportunity to reset your mind and make the, the coming push better than it would have otherwise been, as opposed to just kind of doing a C plus, you know, C, C plus effort through, like take that minute, reset, you know, don't stop. That's the thing. Just don't stop. But if you need to slow your pace, shake your legs out, keep moving, reset, and then bring that effort back up to a B plus, you know, but don't think like, Oh God, I'm doing this. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta run up this hill or I got, I can't, I can't stop and roll out, you know, like uh, roll this ankle real quick and you know, what's going on, you know, and you tend to ironically by having that mindset, you tend to let yourself off easier because you're not maintaining these little things that in the end could or often do stop you from accessing your full potential. So it's funny you should say that because that was going to be one of the questions I was going to ask you because, you know, do you run up a, a hill in an ultra? Because the, the event that we just competed in, I was sort of uh, side to side with this guy who looked like your typical ultra. He's super slim. You know, the visor, the running glasses looked like your stereotypical ultra marathon runner. And uh, we got to this hill and he said to me, he went, don't run this one. So I turned and looked to him. I said, what? Because I wanted to make sure I'd heard him right. And he said it again, and I'm I'm thinking like, is he playing with me? Is he is he what? He said, he said speed march this, and he said I can guarantee whatever you lose in time, you will gain up if you just let your body flow. He said, don't resist when you go downhill. Just let your legs tumble, go with it. Don't try and stop because you might injure yourself. And in my head, I'm going off. He's fucking with me. He's fucking with me. <laughs> we got to the top of the hill, and I done exactly what he said. I just let go and again like that flow state was almost effortless you know coming down in this this beautiful mountain countryside absolutely zipping along like i couldn't tell you what pace i was running at because it just i just felt like lightning and um yeah like that 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 whole playing it smart and like you say not listening to that little ego going come on why what you're walking for get up this hill run it you've done all your training i just think um yeah, that's that's great advice. So thanks for that. That's maturity. You know, it, it, it really is. And you got we all have to learn it the hard way at some point or another. But it's what you know, it's quality over quantity and everything or quality over immediacy or intensity. It's how can you get the most from this experience, you know, and give the most of yourself to this experience. Yeah, I've heard you say that before quality yeah. over quantity. And, and I love that saying. And it's something that I have to every now and again, check myself back in and remind myself to do that but if that's one of your sort in training training mantras can you give us a bit of overview for our listeners what that means yeah absolutely and i mean this is reflected with all my with myself my athletes the programs that we were getting sell everything it's i would i mean just to keep it simply put i would rather have a beautiful perfect three sets of three on your deadlift day than a decent all right six sets of three or you know what i mean or really any other number i want i want a nice technical i want first of all a slow build up a quality build up and you know back off from whatever your top set's going to be but 
uh, I think that, that people get too enamored with volume and intensity and overcoming everything with brute force and frankly being impatient. And they tend to try to approach these things with a sledgehammer. Whereas I think if you're going to be training, especially in multiple domains, you know, like I lift, I run ultras, I do jujitsu, I bear hunt, you know, like I, I do a, a broad physical, you know, a broad spectrum of physical activities. But I think it's it all comes down to finding the minimum effective dose of the maximum effective methodologies. And so you're not wasting your time. You're not doing many things because it doesn't matter how enthusiastic you are, how buff you are, how much energy you have. There's only so many hours in the day. There's only so many, so much energy in your nervous system and your, you know what I mean? And the more wisely you use your time and apply your, yourself to these things, the better your results are going to be. So I want, I, I don't care about overcoming things with intensity or volume. I want pure quality. I want, I mean, it, it's, and it's, even if it's not your thing, it's, it's, it's always a good thing to challenge yourself. Like, Hey, if I go to the gym tomorrow, what happens if, I reduce my volume, I reduce all this stuff, and I just focus on doing three sets of three or what you know, whatever your specified volume is, and I just focus on doing this the best quality I can, the best form, the best mental connection, the best everything, you know what I mean, and see what happens because uh, generally when people do that, they uh, they notice uh, that the, the perks tend to out, outweigh, uh, outweigh the negatives as opposed to conventional other training methods. So like you say, you run, you do jujitsu, you lift, you bow hunt out in the mountains. What does a typical sort of training week or cycle look look for you? And you know, do you do you go through deloads, recovery cycles? You know, what does it look like? Uh, yeah, so the uh, I do deload. Um, uh, I sometimes it's it's more of just a shift in methodologies. So let's say like if I need a deload week, which tends to be once a month or so, something like that. I will, I mean, sometimes you just re reduce your volume and keep, keep what you're doing, reduce volume and intensity by about two thirds and that helps. But I think it's, I find better luck just altering, uh, bringing in an entirely new methodology for that week. So maybe I'm just going to do kettlebells and clubs for that week or something like that, as opposed to my usual routine, which is I lift three days a week and each day I have a bench day a, or an upper body day and lower body day and a whole body or a hinge day, like a deadlift day. And uh, I do high quality, small volume, three sets of three, three, five, five sets of five, sometimes depending you know, on like a bench sometimes or an overhead press. Um, and uh, I follow that with uh, a supporting exercise. I follow that with some GPP or general physical preparedness, such as sleds, your uh, car weighted carries, your tires, your, you know, anything like that. And then I follow that with an accessory to address the weakest point in that day's kinetic chain, whether it's lower, upper, or my posterior chain in the hinge day. And then one or two exercises for that, and then one or two exercises for prehab to preempt any potential issues that may happen, which tend to start with shoulder. You know, on upper body, it's going to be in the shoulder complex, and lower body, it's going to be in the hip complex. Um, and then, so it's three days of lifting. I do jujitsu for three days, and then I ruck, I sprint, and I run. So it comes out to about nine sessions a week overall. But I played with them and uh, found a way to organize them in a way that's pretty symbiotic to whereas, let's say, if I do a squat day one day, then the next day I'm rucking, and it's that active recovery is accelerating rather than you know, adding additional burden onto my nervous system because while it is addressing my legs or it is a – exercising my legs it's a different physiological system it's a different movement pattern it's a whole different set of stimuli and then uh so you tend to kind of find a way to fit all these pieces together in the right volume the right organization you know for to maximize symbiosis 
And uh, that was kind of something I really had to get good at when I did that uh, deadlift, the 520-pound deadlift and 50-mile uh, run in the same day. And the lead up to it and the, the blueprint program that, you know, we put together after, you know, to die, you know, after the fact. Um, so it was really, we just I had to find a way to fit all these things together. And you can also be shy about adding in another rest day. That's the other thing. The ego doesn't want to take an additional rest day. But sometimes a seven-day week is going to take eight days or nine days because you, you know, you overreached a little bit and you need an extra day in there. Um, and keep in mind that a rest day doesn't have to actually fully restful. Like, in fact, I, I train seven days a week without fail. Um, if I'm more beat up, it's going to be lighter or something, but like, uh, active recovery is life for, you know, for me, it's swimming is in my experience. Swimming is the best form of active recovery there is, but anything, any light full or any full body cardio that can be maintained at a light intensity for 20, 30, 40 minutes is excellent on your off day, on, you know, day you're feeling beat up, maybe you need an extra recovery day. I think if you get good sleep, you eat quality food and you engage in intelligent active recovery and prehab, you're probably never going to need to see a cryo tank in your life. You know, I mean, these things happen and I know people are all very uh, excited about all these high tech methodologies and stuff, but uh, I've tried them all. And while I'm not saying they don't have the utilities, I have not found any biohack. You could do all the craziest supplements and, cryos and heat therapies and everything and none of that is ever going to come close to even you know having half as potent as having a solid you know solid food solid sleep solid active recovery solid prehab you actually inspired me earlier i, I watched your documentary and i want to dive into that a little bit later on but um I, I heard you talking about your active recovery your rucking so i've got a like a puppy he's 10 months old he's a working cocker spaniel so like a retrie retriever, uh, you know, a gun dog. I'm told yeah. that if they, were, if they were scared of the shot, that they'd be a beater and they'd go ahead and get the birds or the animals to run out of the bushes. But if they wasn't scared of the shot, then obviously they'd be the retriever. They got the soft mouth and grip to, to bring the kill back. So uh, I chucked on my weighted vest, 10 kilos. So what's that, about 22 pounds? And, uh, yeah, we went for an hour's march up and down the hills. And I was... I was a little bit tight, aching. I'd done some different leg stimuli on the Wednesday and went for a run last night. And uh, I knew I had to do a push day later today. And I was just like, just chuck the vest on, get a little bit of a sweat on. And my whole body went from creaking to smiling. Like the, the difference in just that hour's walk with a little bit of weight, at a, at a, you know, slightly higher tempo than a, than a fast walk. Right. And uh, yeah, reset felt good. Got back under the bar. Got the push session done. So um, thank you for that inspiration. Oh, absolutely. I watched your documentary earlier as well. Um, you deadlifted five hundred and twenty pounds, which for uh, the imperial guys, the metric guys over here in in England and Europe, that's two hundred and thirty-six kilograms, and you run fifty miles in the same day. Yeah, at a body weight of one hundred and eighty-one pounds on that day. So that's what over three times body weight that deadlift it was technically just a little below but my so my max at the time was about i got it up to about 540 which was triple but the pull was ended up that day i pulled 520 and i i wanted to i was tempted i hit 500 it felt flew up i hit 520 i knew i had a little more in the tank and i was tempted to go after that last one but i was like ah you got to go run 50 miles now so well, the 520, the, the whole, the original goal was 550 miles in the same day. So I had already eclipsed that. So, 
I did my back offsets. I did some accessories to kind of activate my hips and legs. But walking out of super training on that day, my legs were uh, my legs were pretty wobbly already. So I knew it was going to be it was going to be a good day. So uh, what was the inspiration behind that goal, that challenge for yourself? I uh, just uh, a buddy and I were talking one uh, about a year before this. And uh, we're just meant, you know, kind of discussing the fact that no, you, you know, you saw a lot of people go to extremes and strength or endurance, but there weren't a whole lot of people doing both. Like the closest thing I had found was like a couple uh, athletes that would do like a squat max and then go run a uh, like a five, you know, a sub five minute mile or something, which seemed cool, but just didn't really appeal to me in the same way that, you know, running an ultra did. And uh, at the time, it kind of, I don't know. I, now I'd say it was a little naive, but like I had this idea that if you were a man who just walked around every day of his life, no peak, no crazy preparation, you just walked around every day of your life, able to deadlift 500 pounds and run 50 miles, you'd be pretty, pretty formidable and, you know, unstoppable. But it, now it, it seems pretty much, it doesn't seem too, doesn't seem too crazy. And I don't, I personally don't feel very formidable or unstoppable compared to some of the guys out there. So, um, but it just it's it, it it called to me man i'd run a couple ultras by then um i do my ultras i have done uh one like organized raced ultra and i play surprisingly well on it considering but uh but most of mine are solos i just I, I like running some of them aren't even planned sometimes i go out for a run that you know i'm thinking i'm going to do a dozen miles and that turns into a marathon that turns into 35 or you know what i mean um and so it's nice. I live in California. So there's, there tends to be not always, but there tends to be some pretty good places to run assuming that it's not fire season and the air isn't all smoky. Um, so, you know, it's just, like I said, it's, it's the Liberty for me and that, that seemed to call and kind of just activate something in me that I don't know that it's just, it, it needed to be done. You know, I remember, um, do you know, coach Greg Glassman, the founder of CrossFit, yeah, not well, but I'm I aware I'm, I'm aware of him. Yeah. So he said, like a few years back, you know, I, I want to see a time where we're going to see an athlete squat 500 pounds and then run a sub five minute mile on the same day, and that that was sort of like a challenge that went around the CrossFit community for a good few years, and eventually a couple of guys done it. But obviously, you know, sub five minute mile that's that's nothing to joke about. But the the you know your feet i think for me is more impressive just purely on based on that endurance part of it as as well as the strength so um i, I see that it was a sumo deadlift as well was that the road that you'd always gone down to do sumo or no i never really drew a distinction uh i pull about five conventional and a little bit more sumo uh i just i have the way my hips i have like super high attaching hips and long legs and so i never really honestly that was i think the fifth time I ever pulled sumo. Um, so I was getting ready to do a conventional. I had my deadlift, you know, I knew it was, I knew I could be, you know, hit five on a conventional pull and I was doing that. And then a few weeks before Mark Bell was just, we were talking and I was just, I was playing around with some other stuff and he was like, Hey, do you ever try pulling sumo? And I was like, no, I'm like, no, I just, I never thought about it. You know, I never even tried. And so this was two weeks before that day. And so I just tried and playing around with it and the weight just flew up more, but more importantly, the next day, uh, my, my back and everything just felt better. And, oh, uh, that's the thing. I have scoliosis, not that it's like a big thing. I didn't even find out till later in life, but there's a curve, a, a cur my spine curves a little to the side. So my hips are uneven left leg, you know, anyway. Um, so now I deadlift both ways, but no, it didn't matter to me. I've never drawn much distinction between the two. I mean, it's, 
it's always been a little bit weird to me that people did because we're literally it's the same lift it's just whether you put your feet wider or narrow it's like are your feet inside your arms or outside your arms so just like you know the all the powerlifting federations it don't matter to me like you know however you get the weight up you get the weight up and if you look at a breakdown it's kind of interesting to look at a breakdown of the powerlifting world record holders so in the lighter weight classes you'll see about 70% of the record holders pull sumo and about 30% pull conventional. Whereas in the heavier weight classes, it's, in, it's almost the exact inverse of that. We're about 70% pull conventional and 30% pull sumo. So in the end, it balances about out, but I, I've done the research, you know, from multiple angles and talked to the guys at Westside Barbell about it and their position, which I've come to, I mean, I believe is, is scientifically correct is that which, which way you pull comes down to where your hips attach. If they attach higher or lower, it's going to depend on how your hips hinge and how your lumbopelvic hip complex operates in general. Uh, and therefore what's going to be the better, uh, better way for, you know, better way for you to pull. But personally, I, I think like with anything else, I try to pull uh, both ways, you know, I think different muscles, while you've been talking, I've just written on my notepad sumo and underlined it three times because what you're saying really strikes a chord. So I've got super long femurs that are not really great for anything apart from maybe rowing. Um, <laughs> my right hip seems to be always out of line. I've got underactive glutes. Uh, I get like that sort of burning pain comes in my right hip, lower back around the SI joint. Um, so I'm going to give it a go. Like it sounds like the the sort of perfect solution for me to try and leave that that I would, I would also do you do any uh like a decent amount of bulgarian split squats i do i do some like unilateral stuff as well like the box Good. step ups uh like the single lunges weighted lunges um try and because I, I know it again like it's it's that area i know i want i need to work on um but i enjoy doing so much stuff that sometimes i get a little bit skewed with my focus but I, I know I need to work on the glutes. Uh, the other thing I would recommend is some lateral stuff from the lower body, like a, uh, a kettlebell goblet alternating side lunge. Nice, just getting nice and low until you can go all the way down side to side through that bottom plane mm -hmm. uh, or basic uh, hip, like cable or banded uh, hip abductions. And then if you can get your hands on a reverse hyper machine, those things have been priceless for me with both lifting and running. Hey, <laughs> there you go. What's so? Can you see that? Yes, sir. That's oh, so you know you're speaking my language already, bro. Yeah. Is that thing a lifesaver or what? So I listened to um, the podcast. I think it was Joe Rogan, and they was talking about um, Louis and him breaking his back, and the the surgeon that he see would said you'd never lift again. And he talked about this reverse hyper, and I was like, straight on the internet. What's a reverse hyper? And I see that Rogue. I've not got the big bad boy. I've got the sort of budget version, but Rogue do like a, I think it cost me 350 euros. And I'm thinking like, that's two or three sessions at a chiropractor. And uh, it's so worth it. If my back's ever getting creaky, I do three sets of 15. I come off it like a new man. Like it is it, like in, in my logical head, I look at it and think, that shouldn't do what it does, but yeah, it's just a, it's a fabulous tool and I'm, I'm forever grateful for, you know, the knowledge and I, I see the original one that Louis built and, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's great to, to see that sort of history and tenacity of someone to, 
you know, not stop when someone says you're never going to lift again to say fuck you and go off and design a machine to, you know, help. Yeah, Louis was a legend, uh, a big, big role model of mine. Yeah. He, uh, it was sad this year, his passing, but yeah, the, the reverse hyper is an excellent machine, a lot going on there. The, another thing I took from them uh, for my ultra running that really helped was the belt squat marching. Like not, I mean, a squat with a belt squat too, but just the marching. And it's something you can do at home with just a band. You can either uh, loop a band through a weight belt and like stand in it and march, or just even over the back of your neck. Like here, you squat down, step in it, squat down, over the back of the neck, stand up, and just start marching. And it's one of those things that feels relatively benign for like the first minute. And then after that, it just starts lighting up every single weak point you have in that entire chain. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. You know, you can go a couple minutes with it and it, it gets brutal. So the the squat um, the marching that you say then with with the belt is that those machines that you the, the you sort of stand up on the platform? Gotcha. Yes, sir. Yeah, but if they're easy enough to improvise, or you can even do it with a low cable pulley attached. You know, like they have at basic gyms, people use for cable. You know, uh, mm -hmm. either standing over it, or if you need more clearance, set up like two uh, boxes. You know, on it, and then just hook it up to your belt and stand up. You can march, you can squat, but uh, it's it's a priceless priceless tool. Wild Hunt Conditioning. Yes, sir. Talk to me about that. That's your program. Um, yeah, that's my bit. I mean, it's, it's my full-time job. It's, uh, I traditionally, when I first got clean, I worked some nonprofit after-school programs and stuff, but before, during, frankly, and after, I've always been con like construction. I managed a couple warehouses and stuff like that. Um, I started Wild Hunt, let's see what, 2021 so last year uh because you know like we talked about freedom uh that applies to my life too i didn't want to be stuck in a cubicle i didn't want to keep running down my body in construction sites and warehouses i didn't want to be confined to a nine to five structure i wanted to be able to travel hunt i wanted to be able to do study and live the things that i that i enjoy things that make me feel alive and free and so i took you know slowly started to develop i just made a social at first just an instagram page and started writing some admittedly pretty bad articles like if you go back i left them up there just so people can see the progression but if you go back and look to i started the page like spring 2021 you go back and look extremely rudimentary basic stuff uh nothing fancy but i started practicing honing my skills researching and uh learning to present the information in better ways and then slowly, uh, you know, had some following. And so when I actually launched the business part of it, it was, uh, you know, there was already people that kind of knew what I was about, knew what I represented and knew how I approached things. And so I was able to get a couple clients early on and then several others from, uh, you know, jujitsu teams or other places, you know, MMA or some local law enforcement officers, just people that I knew from training. And, uh, from there, we just slowly built and uh, maintain, I kept the uh, blue collar job for a while. And then uh, it's been a few months now where I've just been completely in wild hunt just because it takes up so much time. Um, you know, it's like you, you run the business and then you got to run the social media and then you have to, you know, you're responsible for always evolving the product that you represent and build. So it's like, you're studying, you're always a student on top of that. You're reading books from West Side Barbell or from the Soviet Union's Olympic program in the 70s or from, you know what I mean? All these, you know, crazy strongman manuals from 1920s France. And, but it's, you know, or the late, not, and all the latest studies in science, obviously. But it's, uh, 
you know, it, it's just, it's a big thing. And it, ironically, I don't, uh, I feel more energized than ever. I mean, I work about 72 hours a week. I hold a schedule of 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., six days a week. Uh, and I feel more energized than ever. You know, my days fly by and it's just like, where'd the day go? You know, it's not, I'm not looking at the clock. I'm not sitting on, sitting, you know, sitting somewhere I hate with a bunch of people I don't know or care about waiting for my life to pass me by. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm grateful. I'm very grateful. Would it be fair to say that you're following your passion? Yeah, it would. And also, I, you know, like I said, I try to bring, I try to do that in a way that brings something to this world. So it's like, that's why our main focus, we, I mean, we work with everyone, everyone who comes to us and is willing to work and grow and improve. Um, they they have a welcome home with us, but our start and our focus tends to be tactical. So law enforcement, military, well, fight and strength conditioning for fighting men specifically law enforcement, military, MMA grapplers that, that represents the bulk of our clientele currently. Um, and so there are people looking for strength, endurance, athleticism, mobility, prehab, nutrition, everything built into one organic, holistic, symbiotic program that is sculpted specifically with a mind towards the fighting man. So it's how to, you know, how to keep your body durable, how to keep your mind focused, how to keep your strength, your endurance and all the physical attributes there, the mental stuff. Uh, and so it's, it's been, it's been, it's been really good to be able to work with these people. And, you know, although I, I myself make very little impact on the world, some of the people I work with tend to do some very good things and that, that feels good. I enjoy that. It's, it's great to see, I mean, your, your story is inspiring. Um, you know, from you, you're very open and honest about your past. You know, you talk about your time in prison and, you know, being addicted to drugs. Uh, and, you know, you're just proof in the pudding, as we like to say over here across the pond, that, you know, people can change. They can turn their life around. They can, you know, what might have seen many years ago as something totally unachievable or, or even, you know, beyond your wildest dreams. You know, it's a fantastic uh, story that, you know, through grit and determination, and I'm sure that you've had you know, it's been a slog and, and dark days at times that, you know, it's great to see someone come out the other side and, and be doing real positive things. So I just wanted to say, you know, congratulate you on that. There's a there's a part that I've seen on your site about um, you talk about the uh, the dub method. Oh, yeah. Which was a method that you picked up from your time in prison. I was wondering if you could go through that for us. Sure. Yeah, I didn't invent it, uh, but... So I was 19 at the time and I uh, was just kind of starting to, well, there wasn't anything to do in there. And I was trying to, at the time I was trying to focus my mind and body. It would eventually, I, you know, I got on a pretty damn good routine and extremely fit while I was in there. But when I got out, it I've slid back to prior, prior uh, associations and habits. But during this brief window in time, I was uh, very fit and very focused. So I was just working out a lot and reading a lot, anything I could get my hands on. And uh, there was a guy who had he had just been transferred in from Pelican Bay, and he uh, San Quentin before that, and he was uh, he looked very similar to Francis Ngannou, and I mean that quite literally, uh, height, weight, build, everything. And so it was. Uh, it was interesting that I'd watch him work out and he would be doing just like, I mean, like he'd do a thousand burpees in a day. He would, you know what I mean? Like just insane stuff. And so I like, 
it was black and I'm not and in there everything is highly politicized and separate and uh, charged so uh, we couldn't like really hang out or discuss things too openly but it was like you know here and there if you're walking by you could say something or sneak a word in or if you're working out in like adjacent areas you could kind of like talk a little you know the side of your mouth and whatever and so I picked up bit by bit but uh, yeah it was just a, I mean there's no weights in there uh, so it's entirely almost entirely calisthenics um, a lot of your basic stuff you do push-up squats uh, pull-ups and uh, rows dips like you know all sorts of variations of these things usually more than one in the same session um, and uh, then you do a bunch of abs you conditioning would either be burpees or shadow boxing but it was, uh, it was actually a very cool program and looking back at it now it's very completed it addresses most of the range of motion i'm not sure where he picked it up or how long it's been around uh he just called it dub i, I call it the dub method but it's 20 sets of 20 is the basics uh squats push-ups rows dips and uh it was i mean it's pretty brutal it was pretty brutal but it, it ironically it didn't take that long to get through you know you could do your 20 sets of 20 with a few supporting exercises and a little conditioning and be done in an hour you know it's just you can you can fit a lot in that time if you just get to it um and so i used it i used it just because i learned it from him and it was what worked for me and then i ended up winning three back-to-back -back fittest inmate competitions by just doing dubs completely and at that at the peak at that point i was doing three a day so it's like i'd wake up i'd do one i'd time it so i'd do one before each meal because food was relatively limited and i had an arrangement with the uh the house man who's like the uh he's like a senior inmate who kind of liaises with the guards and whatnot and uh where i was getting uh, i was training him boxing i was giving him boxing lessons in return for like a like a quarter or half a crate of uh, skim milks that would be left over and uh, just be drinking those as many as I could just for proteins. It was hard to find. But uh, uh, so I do one dub before each meal and to get up. And so it was like, you know, on my push day, that'd be 1200 push-ups. My squat day, that's 1200 squats plus whatever bur you know, burpees almost every day or shadow boxing. You know, it was like more, mostly alternating burpees one day, shadow boxing the next might take an off day every now and then, but thing is you don't have anything to do you know what I mean so it's like so it's if it's Sunday and you're like your body's feeling beat up and you're like oh, okay I'm not gonna do anything what are you gonna do you can only read so many books and sit you know sit still so many you know what I mean and so it's like I usually end up doing something you know and uh, so I came to I came to like and appreciate calisthenics a lot in ways that a lot of weightlifters don't you know at least I still have as with everything small doses in my uh, my current program I love um you know the mindset to say well you know i'm in this cell i'm gonna be out i'm gonna make the most of my time uh and to do so you're doing 20 times 20 yeah of so squats uh push-ups you said yeah squats push-ups rows and dips with pull-ups you generally just do as many sets of five as you know 20 sets of five would be a pretty typical day mm -hmm. um because even if you could get up to that sort of volume, it's just that's going to be too rough on your elbows and the diminishing returns with that many pull-ups after a while. But the way we did pull-ups in there was generally either sets of five or sets of twenty. So it's like you do as many sets of five as you could, and then if you did want to burn out, you just try to hit twenty pull-ups. You know, and then you're going to have to cluster that, you know, more and more in the beginning and less and less towards the end. But uh, I'm still to this day. I, I that's actually something I've never changed in my training is if I want pull-ups I, I have no interest in doing 25 pull-ups row I mean unless there's a purpose or unless it's something but as far as diminishing 
returns and performance, like broad spectrum performance, that's not going to do anything for you. But if I can do 10, 20 sets of perfect, you know, five perfect pull-ups, quality over quantity, and I mean perfect from bottom to top, full range of motion, you know, strings attached from my elbows to my hips the whole way. Like, I was actually the first time I ever talked to Mark Bell. He, I was just doing a pull-up and he walked by and he was just like, Jesus, that's a perfect pull-up. <laughs> and that was actually how I met him. So, uh, but I just do sets of five, perfect. And believe it or not, most people that can do 10 average pull-ups will struggle to do five perfect pull-ups. I think uh, Tim Ferriss and Pavel Tatsulin were talking about this years ago. I, I have a vague memory of them talking about this and how, how hard it is to actually do five perfect pull-ups, you know. I've set myself, I'd set all these little daily challenges for me just to make sure I keep moving really, just to act as like a little uh, a reset. But um, I've, I've do this thing where I do daily hanging and, and daily pull-ups and, and you're right, like I can grind out 15 16 17 they start to get pretty awful by the end of it but to like you say to have that control and composure to do five super strict from a dead hang bring your chest up touch the bar lower yourself down you know to have that control that time under tension um to, to you know be super strict with your with your form you can get so much more from like you saying doing five sets of five than trying to do like five sets of max efforts or you know you end up pulling yourself all over the place you're probably pulling your spine out alignment um so yeah it's uh, it's, it's great advice i noticed um and i know i'm jumping about here but just bear with me that's how my monkey brain works i noticed in your um in your documentary you had the goggins four by four 48 t-shirt on oh yeah yeah i've done a few of them nice we um the, the guys that i run with we done that through lockdown um and uh we actually changed it slightly we changed one of the legs on each day to a 6.2 mile so it turned out that we done two marathons in two days oh there you go yeah yeah 50 well, it's, yeah yeah that makes sense but i'd love you to share um your experiences of those challenges because um yeah i, I just remember waking up for the 4 a.m run and my body was just i looked like one of these olympic walkers that was drunk basically like uh but yeah what how what was your experiences with that challenge uh the first time i did it was that that was actually what kind of got me what got me hooked on ultra running uh i didn't have any challenge uh no, no training at all i just last like literally decided like oh hey i'm gonna do that this weekend um i had never run more than just doing like road work for mma or jiu-jitsu you know like a you know, three or four miles at light pace and sweats uh i didn't even have good running shoes i just had like some oldish nike cross trainers that i'd been wearing for whatever which that was the worst that was the worst oversight of the bunch um and so i just did it man i i loved it the first day like towards the end of the first day i started to feel pretty good like pretty you know what i mean pretty bad slash you know pretty bad physically which equated to being pretty good feeling pretty good mentally and then uh through the second day it just kind of i just got more and more detached and free and you know like we're talking about you see you see and you're present with your debt you know everyone you've lost or you know cared about that is no longer here and all these things and it's a weird it becomes weirdly spiritual all of a sudden and uh like yeah your body and your mind are gonna rebel a little when you you know when you have to get up that was the thing with that is it's just hard to stop that you know like the hardest part was just stopping that many times like can i just run you know can i just do this but it's like you gotta stop you know you run your four hour you know your four miles and then you gotta wait the rest of the four hours and then you gotta get up again and restart and restart and restart but i think that's good in its own way you know what i mean um 
but the thing was, I realized pretty quick, like once I'm out there moving again, I'm going to feel even, you know, I'm going to feel better. So like, there was never anything in my mind that was like, Oh, you should quit or skip this race or, you know what I mean? Or skip this leg. And, you know, it's just like, I knew out there was better than in here. You know what I mean? Like in here, I'm tired, I'm sore. And I'm like, you know, man, out there I'm, I'm feeling good. So uh, that was, that was one of the, that was the fir my first experience with anything approaching ultra running, you know, uh, so I, did, I, I did it one or two times after and it didn't do as much for me. I just kind of got annoyed because it's like the physical part wasn't challenging. So I just kind of got annoyed when the alarm kept waking me up and I had to keep, you know what I mean? But the first time is awesome. It was a great intro. Yeah. I think I'm one and done on that. Cause um, I, I loved it so much. I wouldn't want to take the experience. I would, I think that's right. I mean, I think you're making the right call with that. Cause I kind of wish I had done that as well. For that weekend, I purposely bought a 500 liter whiskey barrel and this <laughs> was um, March in, in the sort of tail end of the UK winter and the water was getting down to about four degrees. And I'm convinced if it wasn't for doing like a, five minute ice bath after all of those runs that would have been a lot more horrible than um than what it actually turned out to be i'm convinced that that sort of saved my legs and, and helped me get through those eight runs oh yeah they'll keep you going ice baths will keep you going in the short term eventually it'll catch up with you but for something like that you know you got multiple you know multiple grappling matches or legs of a run over a day or two yeah ice bath will keep you going yeah but let's say ice bath for short term and heat for long term recovery yeah, exactly. What is your longest run to date? Uh, I did a hundred. Uh, I've only done that once, and I it wasn't particularly fast. I would have liked to be like under twenty-four hours, but it was it was more like it was like two and change. But uh, uh, two and almost three. But I subtract nine hours from that because I had to go work a shift in the warehouse midway through. I couldn't get the time off work, <laughs> so. <laughs> I literally went in, you know, I didn't sleep at all. I just, I ran and went in, worked at my manual labor job and it was a floor in a flooring warehouse at the time. So like moving rolls of carpet and boxes of tile and stuff. And then as soon as I punched out, I just put my shoes, I just literally went back and just got right back into running. And, uh, that, that kind of, that kind of, I mean, it kind of was a little bit of a buzzkill, but the, uh, I ended up tearing my meniscus in the 91st mile. And so the last nine miles were pretty rough. It was a, a minor tear, not, not like a lot of people have to deal with, mm -hmm. uh, no surgery required, but it did kind of make, uh, I had to take some time off after that and it made grappling difficult for a couple of months. But, um, so that was a hundred, you know, I guess there was a nine hour break and nah, it wasn't a break. I was working, but so I, I put an asterisk next to that one, but I've done some other stuff. You know, I've, I've been on the other side of 50 a few times without, you know, but a couple times. You know? So I take it. There was a lot of caffeine used in that hundred mile effort. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm pretty moderate with my intake overall, but, uh, it's just, it, you know, it helps it mostly getting off work. Uh, and come, you know what I mean? Because at that point, your body has been, it's tired in another way. Now your hands, your shoulders, your back and every, you know what I mean? You're fatigued from lifting and carrying shit. And, uh, and so it's like, you, you know, it, you, you want to become, you want to go return to comfort, you know? And it's also a reflexive, you get off work, you want to go home. And if you crack a beer or whatever your thing, you know, whatever your decompression ritual is and you're like, ah, shit, I got to go all night. I'm going to be out there all night for sure. And into tomorrow afternoon, at least, you know, if I'm good, if I'm lucky into tomorrow afternoon running. Um, so, uh, but you know, you, you have, I like, you know, cold brew, you know, 
little little nitro get you going <laughs> i've heard you talk about um an english rugby coach that you picked oh, yeah. jack taylor jack taylor yeah that you picked up some advice on in regards oh, yeah. to uh, sort of how you fuel these long runs i'd love to get your insight and you know if there's people listening that are inspired to do an ultra or have got plans to do one what would be your best sort of advice on how to fuel those when you're you know during the run itself so i don't actually like on the day of i don't do it much different just like with fighting i don't you don't want to introduce anything foreign or unusual to your digestive tract you should do what you do pretty much any other day uh, and the days leading up to it definitely make sure your carbs are at, you know adequately topped off you know maybe three for the three days or so leading up to it make sure you're getting some extra carbs and you're preparing every you know everything's good and your micronutrients and whatnot uh but as far as fueling for the run itself uh the rule of thumb it originally came from jack and i've got similar numbers from other people and i can't remember the exact numbers that jack had but essentially i created and I, I played with it and created an average between what he said and what a couple others did but it was pretty close i think to the guidelines that he gave and it was about 250 calorie you know it's going to depend on body mass smaller person 200 larger person 300 but for a middle-sized man you know what i mean someone you know the roughly to that middle range it's going to be about 250 calories per hour about a you know eight ish eight nine grams of protein and 16 ounces of water with accompanying electrolytes of some form uh per hour after the first hour so you get out there you're running for an hour that's fine if you're going to go out and run for four hours then get your 750 calories get your 24 you know your 24 30 grams of protein and you know your what is that 48 ounces of water uh at least accounted for or planned for um i'm kind of bad about that sometimes i just want to go out and run and not you know what i mean so i and i kind of embrace the cross country hunter's mindset a little bit more where it's like ah no i got a couple i got two water bottles and a cliff bar and a, a bag of bison jerky like that'll be fine for half a day you know but that's that you're certainly not getting ideal performance max performance and it's like if i'm only running 20 miles i know i'm coming back at the end of it whereas if i'm in a 50 mile or 100 mile ultra marathon i know i have to plan for the hours following after this not oh hey i'm just gonna go for a four hour run and then be back in the comfort of my home with all the food whatever i need you know yeah it's um i can only imagine that the 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 calories that you must have burned covering that hundred miles you've got any idea of what you yeah lost? it was about six thousand uh and that was during so people get really carried away with some of these calorie numbers these ten thousand calorie estimates and stuff i can tell you for mm. sure at 180 pounds if i'm lifting doing jujitsu and running 50 to 100 miles a week somewhere in that range my calories are never going above like 4800 you know what i mean that's that seems like a lot but that's that's doing you know what i mean that's legitimately doing three separate things you know at, at mo you know moderate to high intensity but like on an actual race day where i'm running all all day long yeah, six i'm about six thousand but there's no way you're going to get that in while keeping move you know what i mean keeping moving so you just you do your best to keep up with it the electrolytes concern me more i like to stay ahead of the electrolytes because once you're dehydrated it's, you're not probably you're not going to catch up before the end um and then you just do your best to keep the protein the carbs coming in I, you know i like acai juice because it's nice and sweet and you know pretty calorie dense got a little bit of fat in it uh, whey protein you know for people that digest it easily like myself um anything you can do to keep the stuff coming in a little anything with peanut butter and honey in it little tortillas and you know stuff like that it's good that you just grab and munch on while you're going anything that digests easily fruit you know but uh 
yeah, there's no way you're keeping keeping that up. You know, even even if you run a marathon, that's two thousand calories extra on top of what you are, you know, what you need for just to be an athletic human being doing your everyday life. And uh, so it's you know, and I twenty miles ain't thing or twenty five, twenty six point two, and it's not that long really when you think about it. It's only yeah. two hours worth of running. Well, while we're talking about twenty six point twos, because that reminds me of a little story of of how the marathon got its distance changed. So, when the Olympics was back in London, and the king at the time declared that he wanted the runners to come past Buckingham Palace, and it took the additional mileage up to that twenty six point two, um, and and that's my little segue into the fitness history world because I know, and we'll put links to your to your page. And your documentary and YouTube channel into the into the body of this episode page, but you're you've massively smashed two of my favourite subjects, and I've never really thought about this before, and I can't believe I haven't. But fitness history, um, you know, some of the stuff that you post about and write about is fascinating, and I'd love to just sort of dive into firstly how that sort of came around, and then some of the some of your favourite finds that you've you've had you know, sort of delving into that subject. Oh man, that's, there's so much there. Um, I initially, most of the stuff I posted was just stuff I already knew that I'd type up real quick and put on. Later on, I started like doing more research and I'd like to, I wish I had the time to do, a, you know, even more deeper dives than I do as it is. And in the future, maybe that'll become more of a thing, especially maybe a longer form platform, you know, YouTube would be a good one. Um, but some of the favorites, oof, I uh, I like the stuff with the Spartans. He found out that, like, one in general, the way that they live, and everyone does, right? I mean, everyone who's seen 300, they're, they're a cultural thing. But moving beyond, like, the actual Spartans, not the, what the, the French, the French had a name for it. Uh, oh, not Spartan romanticism, Spartan mysticism. But essentially, they had a term for how people tend to, romanticize and mythicize you know spartans and they were just men you know same as us but when you look at the reality of the situation you find it's almost more impressive you know like they they were born with all the same fears and insecurities that you and i had and yet they still managed to actually do these things um you look at the structure of the agogi and the, the military training and it really is fascinating because they're the only they're the only culture in human history that is just been completely and utterly devoted to creating the best warriors possible. And there's been great, you know, Rome had a great military, but it wasn't about creating the best soldiers possible. It was about, you know, logistics and, you know, where they say Rome, you know, the Roman empire was carved out with the shovel, not the sword. You know, they built their roads and their trenches and that was kind of what defined them. Their logistics system was second to none. Alexander the Great's Macedonians were, you know, well-equipped veterans, well-led, but they were not Spartans, not even close, you know? And so a Spartan, every single thing was dedicated to just preparing to provide the best possible death for your state that you could. And that, so that fascinated me. Um, and little things, I mean, they had an actual practice that, you know, like one of the things the Spartan, the average Spartan boy was educated in was the actual academic study of fear of what it meant philosophically, physiologically, neurologically, how to circumvent it, how to deal with it. They had breathing exercises, thought exercises, all this stuff to just help demystify it. And uh, 
their strength and conditioning was highly functional, you know, highly athletic. Like people forget Spartans tended to win most of the Olympic events, certainly the pancreation and wrestling most years. Um, foot races, they usually won the armored foot race too, because there was an Olympic event that was essentially a foot race when full armor and a shield, no weapons, but you'd carry a shield and helmet, cuirass, the whole thing. And uh, which seems crazy because um, uh, that, that bronze gear is not light. And uh, so they were, if I had to pick one, I would say it was the Spartans. And that was also the one that affected me and my, the way that I organized my mental and physical pursuits the most. You you touch on the, there the pancreation. I'd like you to just expand a little bit of that give us a basic overview of of what that is for people that have never heard of it. Yeah, pancreation was uh, mixed martial arts. It's no different than what we see today. More savage, a lot less rules, but the uh, essentially same thing. You had punches, you had kicks, you had wrestling, you had submission holds. Uh, from studying the records, we know that submissions were a little bit you know were more common than knockouts, which is just like today. Um, we know that grapplers tended to do a little bit better, just like today. I mean, you know, when all things were equal, just like today, uh, wrestlers tend that transition to pancreation tended to do better than boxers that transitioned to pancreation. Although the three were pretty similar. So you had a lot of guys doing all three, not too dissimilar from today. Um, and uh, it, it really was applicable in the day even more than now because that was the way you would fight in war once your shield and spear you know if your if your spear was gone your shield whatever your sword you would be fighting for your life with actual combat techniques so you know it wasn't like you could uh, get away with some of the stuff that certain martial artists may get away with these days um and so uh, you know really just mma ancient greek mma you um you, we touched on it earlier and it's a subject i wanted to ask your opinion on so my son is five. Um, he's he's got into rugby. It's not full contact. It's touch rugby. Um, he, he said, "Daddy, daddy, I want to try karate because he's watched the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on on the telly." And I was sort of sending him a little white lie to say that, "Well, there's a type of karate called jujitsu," because I'm thinking, you know, for the tackling and when he's on the ground, etc. Um, you know, what would be your advice in regards to what age do you think a kid should start jujitsu and then i know you've you've dabbled with lots of martial arts in your time um you know just sort of talk me through your your, your fighting history as well if you can or your martial uh, arts history sorry i started with wrestling and then kickboxing and muay thai and then mma and then i've dabbled with anything and everything i can learn along the way since then but anything after that that i've dabbled in is not i wouldn't claim to have trained in it judo and some of the other things, oh, I mean karate, you know, stuff like that, but boxing a little bit, but that's more like, uh, you know, just getting some training sessions in to supplement some, you know, some judo training sessions in to supplement my jiu-jitsu or some boxing in to supplement my MMA, stuff like that. It never primary focuses. Um, as far as age, I think five is actually about the perfect age. Uh, and then not that you have to rush him in or he has to be ready. If he's not ready, that's fine. But, you know, five, six, by seven for sure he should be. You know, I think it'd be a good time to get him rolling. Also, just for personal development, for interest in jujitsu specifically is great because it's just it's natural. Kids want to be on the ground. They want to roll around. They want to play like it's not as rigid and form. not that all karate places or traditional martial arts places are rigid and formal. But a lot of, you know, standing, doing kata, stuff like that. It's different, you know, and it's like, you know, some kids, it's great, I'm sure. But uh, jujitsu seems to be a, a, a kind of more organic fit for a lot of kids and 
it also is going to have more carryover into the real world as far as self-defense and you know certain aspects of confidence and whatnot and again not that you want to get karate kicked in the face by a guy who knows what he's doing don't get me wrong but as far as day-to-day -day, you know and it's if you can grapple if you can get a hold of someone and control someone it's an entirely different skill set you know and i think it's good for kids to understand that and also not to be so shaken up themselves by physical contact and confrontation and it's a perfectly tame and controlled where you know if you have a good jujitsu coach and a good jujitsu school which the vast majority of them are then uh, it's only going to be positive stuff for that kid and yeah they're going to have to learn about their ego because they're going to get tapped and they're not going to like it or some bigger kid's going to hold them down and they're going to feel helpless but those are things you need that we need to deal with we need to deal with them in healthy ways from a young age so we don't start seeing well, quite frankly, a lot of the problems that we see in the world today with people, men and their egos, and, you know. Yeah, I'm smiling because when you said it's natural for kids to be on the floor sort of rolling around, my son is a twin. So <laughs> he, his sister, they can be best of friends. And then within a flash of a second, you know, they've got each other in an arm bar or, a, you know, a choke yeah. or a hold. And it's, it's, it's amazing to see, you know, how natural that type of movement and rolling is for, for people that don't even know that that's an art. Um, but yeah, that's uh, some great advice. Thanks for that. Awesome. So your system, your, your wild hunt conditioning, there's a, there's a sort of line on it, building a system for the fighting man. Yes, sir. So if you had a total blank canvas, give me a, give me sort of an overview or description of what you would do to build, you know, a close to perfect fighting machine. Give me what's the substrate? You? Just so so say just say someone total zero fighting experience, very little training, you know, late like you late teens, get into 18, 20, you know, what would be your, your blueprint to turn them into a, a fighting machine? So everything like I do, I think I don't think there's any one size fits all. I that everything is custom fitted to the individual and not just mentally, but physiologically. Like if you're a kid that comes in with a crazy amount of strength in his posterior chain, then the first thing I'm going to do is not going to be try to build your deadlift as high as possible. Um, so to answer your question more specifically, I'm going to address the biggest weaknesses. I'm going to address weaknesses biggest first. Okay. So the priority for fighting is always going to be skills training. Okay. You can do all the deadlifting and running and kettlebell work in the world, all the weighted carries, all the you know extensor training it none of that's going to mean much if you can't fight okay so skills training always comes number one that has to be the priority and it is the goal of strength conditioning training with wild hunt to make that easier not harder okay you, you should be able you shouldn't be so beat up that you can't wash your head let alone fight off an arm bar or you know pass a guard you should be stepping onto the mat or into the ring or onto your job on patrol whatever you're doing feeling more capable not more compromised and so with someone like you're saying uh, you build first things first you need the posterior chain strength you know that's your deadlifting muscles your back muscles your glutes your hamstrings all the things that keep and link your body together and have the greatest impact on force production now you definitely need strong legs and upper body too but you need strong posterior chain you need good aerobic capacity <clears throat> you need to get a good be a PhD, what do they say? Be a major in the minors. So it's like you need to be an expert at the little things, the basics of nutrition, recovery, strength training, all that. And from that age, because by the time you're 35 or you're 30 or whatever, you're in the pros and you're trying to learn it, it's too late. And by then you have other things to worry about, like, you know, 
staying alive on the in Afghanistan or keeping that job in the NFL or, you know what I mean? Whatever it is. So you need those habits ingrained from the beginning. Okay. Uh, physically speaking, I want them to develop a good balance from the get go of strength, athleticism, speed, endurance, and durability, not necessarily in that order. And I want to address the weakest points in that chain first, as we mentioned. So if you have just terrible upper body strength, that's when we're gonna have to address that. If you can't run 10 miles without having serious issues, we're gonna have to address that, you know, and how we address it is gonna vary from person to person, but it's gonna be in a way that is holistic and organic to that person. I'm not gonna be forcing someone who hates to run out running every day. We're gonna find a way to build that aerobic capacity high enough to get you there. You're still gonna have to run some, don't get me wrong, but it's gonna be sprinting, it's gonna be rucking, it's gonna be rowing, it's gonna be swimming. There's gonna be, you know, which you should be having that variety anyway, but perhaps we're gonna spread that variety a little more evenly uh, in a situation like this. Um, and we have to address physiological imbalances too, because all of us have them in our modern movement patterns, uh, tend to reinforce bad habits, very linear forward motion. We don't do things side to side. We don't do things backwards. So you need to address that. That also carries a lot of benefits with movement, proprioception, coordination, reaction, all these things that have a high degree of carryover into these active pursuits. So I want to, I'm going to fix the deficiencies first. And then once we're nice and well-rounded, we're going to start bringing up the entire level bit by bit. We're not going to try to spike the strength and then spike the speed and then let the PT catch up and then let the mobility. And then that, no, bring everything up, fill all the holes, get nice, smooth. And then we bring, we raise the thing up as a whole. It takes longer, but you're creating a superior product. And as you know, with me by now, quality over quantity. Yeah. You're building a solid foundation. That's going to be there to, safeguard for the long range long term yeah. it, you reminded me actually many moons ago i used to box and um you know i used to study the likes of manny pacquiao floyd mayweather and it, you can look like a world champion on the bags but the second you get in the ring and you start sparring oh, yeah. you, take, you take that humble first stiff jab to the face and it sort of wakes you up and you go here we go we you bite down on the on the gum shield and you get stuck in you know um, just to echo really what you're saying that it, it's if you want to get better at fighting you, you, you've got to fight um and i still remember that first round that i ever done i'm sparring like my adrenaline just absolutely took over my whole system the two minutes felt like two hours yeah. and uh, as as much as i enjoyed it and went back for more it was a massive eye-opener to say holy shit like you can be as fit as a fiddle outside the ring but inside it's a different ball game no, if you yeah, if you don't have fighting cardio, then it, you could be a CrossFit. Like you could put Matt Frazier on the rolling mat with me, or who you know the fittest man on earth, and I'm going to have him sucking for air in minutes. And it's it's not it's not about the fitness. It's, just, it's there's a high degree of specificity in fighting cardio, and it's even with a grappler. You put a grappler in a kickboxing match, and you're going to see the same thing. So I think it's important to train all these energy systems, all these muscle lengths, all these muscle functions, as well as all these skill sets as the primary focus. But, and then again, you have to train the mind too, because that same thing you're talking about when you go in from training to the sparring, same thing happens again, we go from sparring to a live scenario, to competition. And then when you go from competition, the same thing happens again, when you go to live, you know, an actual real life fight or scenario, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like, don't be wrong, being fit, it helps. But if you want to actually be dangerous in the world, be able to protect you and yours, you need more than that. You know, the, the typical gym bro routine is not going to do it. 
And if you don't believe me, come down, come train with me anytime. Anyone who anyone who doubts that word, they're free. I'll give them. A, I'll pay. I'll pay their day pass. Come train with me, and we'll see what's what. You know. Uh, I love um, what you talk about. You know, training in those different directions or the non-conventional directions, and there seems to be a bit of a, a shift now. And you know, shout out to the likes of Mark Bell and Encima for the guys that seem to be you know at, at the forefront and pushing this. That you know gone are the days where it's just squat bench and deadlift you know that still obviously has that's still big foundations big compound movements but you know the the sort of stuff that they're doing now with these um you know so for example the swinging balls uh the the loaded carries the the cossack squats in different directions you know all the sort of stuff that uh, that just for example ben patrick knees over toes guy all the stuff that seems to be boiling out of the fitness world now i i, I love it and um it, i just think that's a great takeaway for people you know you almost have to be like your own sort of pt and experiment um with with you know when you say about attacking your weaknesses and turn that into your strength um i just think that's a great takeaway for people to to you know go away and work on their own individual or like you say the customizations of of what your body needs to be able to to push on to the next level um, I, oh sorry i was just going to add to that you're 100 percent right but i i had I, I found myself doing this because i when i first started doing all these things i consulted anyone i could think of and no one could give me a good answer on how to balance my training or how to organize them like so i want to keep running ultras but i also want to keep grappling but i like lifting weights two three days a week too and you know and uh everyone's like dude i don't know it's a lot of moving parts i don't i'm not sure like and so for a while i was like i kind of just resigned and not being able to find a balance I'm like, All right, well maybe i'll have seasons like it'll be bow hunting season and then you know and i tried with that and then but eventually it's just like you build a good base you find a good system you find the minimum effective dose and you don't make it more complicated or difficult than it needs to be you know yeah great advice um you talked about on the mark bell podcast actually the mTOR relationship and i'm probably going to fuck this abbreviation up is it ampk ampk yeah ampk i'd love you to just um sort of recap on on that because that's the first time i've ever heard that about the ANPK. Um, so, yeah, I'll preface this by saying that while this definitely does make a difference, and for people who are trying to actively build muscle while also doing significant cardio, it's relevant, but it's not by any means the most relevant thing. But the basic, without getting overly technical, which I wouldn't be the best guy to do that breakdown anyway, but the basics of it are when you lift weights, particularly through the typical hypertrophy range. Your body releases something called mTOR, which is a, a muscle building, we'll call it a muscle building, you know, just oversimplify things, a muscle building hormone. It just signals your body to build additional, you know, myotissues. Um, that tends to stay in your system for roughly, I think on most people, it's like about 18 hours. Okay. So that effect is there, it's signaling, etc. When you run, and when I say run, I don't mean 10 minutes of cardio for a warm-up. I mean when you run either super high intensity, like a full sprint session, or maybe you run 10 miles or more, something like that, like significantly run, your body releases a decent level, or I'm sorry, moderate, moderate to high levels of something called AMPK, which is essentially the cardio hormone. It's, you know, it's signaling your body. It's released in response to cardio input, signaling your body to make the relevant adaptations. Now, 
that stays in your body for only about three hours. Uh, the thing is, we are endurance animals. We're the best, fittest endurance animal, land animal on the planet. Um, there is nothing, you know, there's no animal on this earth that's going to beat me in a long-term foot race. You know, I think a wolf, a wolf can come probably closest and, you know, there, but after a marathon or so, I'm going to, I'm going to outpace a wolf even. Um, we have sweat glands, we're bipedal, you know, we're, we're literally just built, we're built to run, hyper-efficient. Uh, as such, our endurance adaptations will always overshadow our strengths adaptations. Uh, it's more conducive to survival as well as terms of using the resources the human body takes in. So if you are going, let's say I go and I lift, I do a hypertrophy lift, I get all that mTOR in my system and it's going to be there for about 18 hours, right? But two hours later, I go and I do a hard cardio session. I run 20 miles, I hit it hard. Well, that AMPK and mTOR, they don't coexist well. And the AMPK always wins. It will override that. Therefore, minim pretty minimize, noticeably minimizing the hypertrophy response and the, the acquisition of additional tissues in my body. Uh, so for a lot of people who want the best of both worlds, what you want to do if, is if you're going to do hypertrophy or strength training and running on the same day, ideally do the running in the morning, uh, allow three hours to pass before you, you know, approximately three hours. Don't get too stressed out or caught up on it. again. We're talking things that make one, 2% difference. They're not going to change or ruin your day. It's not like you, if you can't do this, you shouldn't work out. You should go home, but let three hours or so go by. And even better was to let three hours or so go by and have a meal with a moderate amount of carbs and protein both, and then uh, go do your uh, your strength session after that. Um, but it's, life's not perfect. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. There's days when I'll go lift and then I'll just decide that for whatever reason, or maybe my schedule forces me to, I'm going to go do jujitsu right after and I go roll hard for an hour. And that's definitely AMPK inducing, you know? <laughs> so there's a relation, uh, what is it? An inverse relationship between the two. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating insight. And uh, I thank you for sharing that. And, and I know that's probably been from time looking at studies and, and researching that. So um, appreciate that. We've touched a little bit on it, but I'm interested in what your diet looks like. I've, I've heard you talk about, um, you know, having a quite a primitive or you, you prefer eating primitive types of foods. I'd love you to just give us a bit of exposure of what your your uh, typical sort of food looks like. Um, so, yeah, I, I have a pretty balanced diet, honestly. I, uh, I, like, I don't think restrictive diets are beneficial to the athlete. I don't think keto, vegan, whatever your thing is, look, I think, about, you know, a balanced diet is – you know, it's what they told you in school is for the most part going to be the, you know, the way to go. I think uh, lean meats, quality dairy, fruits, vegetables, nuts, greens. I think, you know, a good full spectrum diet is going to give you the best uh, access to the broadest spectrum of nutrients possible. Um, but having said that, the important things are high protein, moderate to high fiber, high, very high micronutrients and uh, low on additional bullshit additives and you know everything else. So for me I eat a lot of game meat. I'm a hunter. I like I like the way it tastes in my opinion, you know, a good like a good elk steak is, you know, like a, an elk backstrap is the, the best meat you're going to have on this planet as far as the way it tastes, as far as the way you feel and perform on it. Um but it's not like you have to be out there eating bear and elk meat to, you know, to perform well. So clean quality meats, 
you know, all the, the fruits and veggies to support it. Nuts are good for a variety of reasons, caloric density included, some greens. Um, you know, I really don't restrict much. I don't like to eat a whole ton of like uh, refined carbs or sugars or gluten or anything like that. I'm not super against it or anything. I just find my body tends to perform best when I'm on a diet that is meat, quality dairy, uh, fruit, veggies, and uh, like if I need extra carbs, especially during running seasons, rice or beans. But tonight I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to have about 10 ounces of venison. I'm going to have a uh, some sweet, you know, uh, like bushes, you know, bush style beans. And uh, I'll probably have a uh, zucchini, a little bit of just a tiny glaze of tallow and some, you know, some garlic, salt, pepper on that, little seasoning. And that'll be it, you know. And uh, I still eat dessert. I still do, you know, I fit in a couple desserts every week. Nothing too, I don't, nothing too crazy. If I'm having, if I have dinner and I want something sweet, I'll have a little baby candy bar, or even just some honey and, you know, whatever after. And it's, uh, the more that you kind of learn about and quantify and systematize these things, the the less they have power over you. And mm -hmm. I do, I track my macros. I also track my micros and my fiber. Um, it's not, I don't go out of my way. I have just a basic chronometer app. I just, right now I'm using the free one, scan the barcode for whatever I'm gonna eat or just input the eight ounces of chicken or, you know, whatever. And, and uh, like I tell people, it's like, if you want, to run a high performance vehicle, do you think it is better or worse to track your gas, your oil, and your fluids? You know, not necessarily essential to win a race, but yeah, you know. And for me, there's large, large uh, swings in my energy output. You know, if I'm running, then it's 4,800 calories a day. And if I'm just lifting, doing jujitsu, and kind of, you know, doing you know, rucking, doing whatever else for that week, you know, and it's not, I, for whatever reason, there's not any long runs, and it's like 3,000, you know, 32, 33, 3,400, something like that. So pretty big difference, you know. Yeah, agreed. You got you got to fuel up for what's in front of you, haven't you? Yeah. Oh, always, always. Give yourself the best. I mean, be a friend to yourself and give yourself the best possible chance of success. And that holds with preparing for anything, even if it's you know meal prepping, if it's what you know whatever it is. Like, do you know be a friend to yourself tomorrow, today. That's great, Sam. Um, have you ever played around with fasting? Do you fast at all? I played with it, mostly cutting weight, fighting and stuff. I like fasts, but I don't notice much left for, you know, if I'm fasting for less than a day. So I like 24 to 48 hours seems to be a good fast. Uh, some people think that sounds like a lot, but it's really not. Like, let's say you go through, you know, one normal day as you would eating normal. That night you have a big dinner. The next day you wake up, you skip breakfast, you skip lunch, you come home and you have another big dinner. Like yeah. that, it's 24 hour fast right there. And you, all you did is, you know, I, I don't eat a big breakfast anyway most days. And and if, if, if it's hard for you mentally or physically or you feel hungry or whatever for whatever reason, then take a thermos of bone broth with you to work. Put a little seasoning, a little bit of garlic in there, salt, pepper, whatever it is you like, and just sip on your bone broth throughout the day. You know, it's just protein, collagen, breaks down super easy. Um, I, I don't want to say – I tend to stay away from the biohacking stuff because I – well, maybe that's not the best way. I've already experimented with most of it. And I think there are specific utilities. So I think the ketogenic diet is great if you have epilepsy. I think, you know what I mean? Like I, there's, you know, it's not that these things are without their purposes, but I think for the vast majority of applications of athletic performance and the vast majority of physiologies and people, basics don't go out of style, baby, you know? Well, look, you know, it's tried and tested, isn't it? We, When we touch on what the guys were doing in, in ancient Rome, uh, and and you know the the Greek guys, they they probably lived 
uh, a purer life you know where we've got um the influx of technology which is great you know i'm an overuser of technology but if you just I, I saw i don't know if i've if i paint a perfect picture for those guys but that i just picture that the skies would be a lot more clearer you know they'd, oh, see, yeah. they'd see the stars they'd live a lot more of a purer life that yeah. um that i think um that we could all maybe take uh some some impact from and you know uh trying to sort of live a a little bit more of a simpler life when we overload ourselves with different challenges and 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 too many tasks at hand and and just try and get a bit too crazy with things oh i agree and like just like with lifting weights i'd, I'd challenge people to take a look at your diet and see just how well you can get at the basics you know mm -hmm. what i mean like how well can you master meat fruit and veggie you know and if you need more then get better quality meat fruit and veggies but the parallel I use, we were talking about Khabib, the, the UFC fighter who wrestled the bear. So, like, Jay, if you were to come train with me for two or three weeks, you would come away from that knowing every single move Khabib has ever used in the octagon. He only uses, so to take it to boxing, he only ever uses the one and the two. Maybe now and then busts out the three. You know what I mean? The shut, the, a hot one down the pipe. But yeah. almost everything he does is just the one and the two. Everyone at the highest level knows that all he does is the one and the two. Yet everyone, to a man, cannot stop that one and two. Even at the highest level, the guys with all the res more resources and experience than him, he came from a village in Dagestan. He trains in San Jose an hour from me. You know what I mean? The guy, he's not, you know, it's he's not a crazy genetic specimen. He's not any, you know, he's just he's just a mountain man who's been doing, you know, he's been grappling his whole life, and uh, he knows that. He can do the one and the two to anyone on planet Earth. And he is the most dominant. You know, people can get into the whole goat debate in MMA. I don't, I don't care. He's the most dominant MMA fighter we've ever seen. Okay. He's never even been threatened. He's only been hit clean twice. And each time, both times he just kind of shrugged it off and then just destroyed the guy. You know, I mean, no one else can say that. And he does not do any crazy jumping, spinning back kicks and inverted heel hook entries. And he's just the ones and the twos. So I would challenge people to just think about that a little bit next time they're picking out their exercise plan or their meal plan or the recovery plan. And it, it's not to say what they're doing is wrong or they shouldn't be doing it, but just think maybe what would happen if I just did the basics here with the best possible quality. Yeah. World-class basics done right every single time. That's all I do. Yeah. Agreed. James, I think this is a perfect time for us to dive into our standard chasing discomfort questions that we wrap up the podcast with. Sure. So what's the best advice you've ever been given? Uh, before my first grappling tournament, Jocko Willink told me to have fun. And he meant in life in general, I had just gotten clean and sober. I had broken my thumb a couple weeks before and was kind of had lost a friend close to me. And I was in kind of a tenuous spot mentally. And uh, he said, just have fun, like go out there and have fun mm -hmm. and won the tournament. I only had six weeks of training, so that was nice. Um, but, uh, uh, and he's right in that, like, people tend to, I don't know him super well. I know him a little bit. We've talked a handful of times. But I, I think people tend to misunderstand him. They think he's some serious, uh, you know, unyielding figure when, like, he's nice, chill, very relaxed, very easygoing dude. But he can be like that because he's free to be like that because he has the discipline to enable that. And it's just like with anything else, like, you know, if you want to eat a piece of cheesecake and you've been disciplined in your diet all week, you've been eating fruit and veggies and meat and you haven't been messing around, you've been training hard, 
you can eat that piece of cheesecake and you're never going to notice anything different. But if you've been sitting around eating Cheetos and hanging out all day and doing this or that, eat that cheesecake, it's going to add up pretty quick, yeah. you know? And it's the same thing. Like I, I try to be as happy and carefree and approachable in my, my everyday life as possible. And, uh, because I've, you know, I train hard. I do the best I can to show up for the people in my life and the people around me. And I try to show up for myself. And, uh, you know, if you're disciplined in that, you're free to enjoy life and just go on the ride, man. I've loved, I've read his book twice. Um, uh, and that, that, that discipline equals freedom is a little tagline, little mantra that, you know, when, when the silent, that inner bitch is chatting to me, you know, go and go and be a fat, lazy slob or, you know, oh, it'd be easy to miss this session tonight. Like that gets me every single time. And it's, um, yeah, it's fantastic advice. And, um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. What's the one non-negotiable rule that you live by? I don't break. There's no, there's no, I, you, I leave myself plenty of room to operate and move on things. But when it comes to the hard line topics, I, I completely unyielding. I will never give an inch when it comes to pursuing my goals, defending someone I care about or that is innocent. There's not, there can't be. And if you don't, if you don't hold to those things with absolution and be willing to die for them, they mean nothing. Mm. It's not, it's not a belief. If it's not a belief, you know, that you're willing to sacrifice everything for. We have a saying over here in England that you give someone an inch, they'll take a foot. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. They can, they can keep coming. They can keep trying to take, I'll be here. <laughs> What's your favorite quote? Oh man. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite, but I, uh, wow, there's several. Uh, I actually, I heard that the picks up there north of you used to say uh, that the that the uh, the brave man fights with the strength of 10 ancestors and 10 descendants when the coward fights with only his own. I always liked that. Mm. That's a good one. Um, dream car or dream machine for you? Not really a big car guy. Um, uh, a good truck that's gonna get me through all the back roads, not break down, not get me stuck. I'll take that. Whatever, whatever it says, whatever, whatever color, I'll take that. Sounds good. Two dinner guests you'd invite, either dead or alive. Uh, oof. So restricting it to two would be challenging. Let's see. Um, I'd say. Uh, I've always, not even for any intellectual reasons, mostly out of curiosity, I, I, Socrates would have to be one. He's fascinated me as a man, both physical and mental. He's, uh, he's an interesting one. And uh, as far as a, uh, a second guest, I'll go with someone alive. I think Joe Rogan would be a cool guy to talk to. Most, I mean, he seems like just a cool guy in general, but specifically because he's, I mean, when you think about it, he's probably talked to more experts in more fields than anyone alive. I get this job to literally just talk to experts all day. And I think the knowledge that guy's acquired would probably be pretty, uh, I mean, I'd love to, love to, love to talk to him about some things. Yeah. He's for me, um, you know, coming from a world that was media dominant news channels, you know, these 24 channels, updates, adverts, sponsored, you know, this, we won't get into the politics because we could spend all day talking about that. But for me, he's been a shining light you know, the last few years with his podcast of of bringing people on, asking, you know, very 
honest and open questions and not being the guy that is nodding like he's understanding when he doesn't know what someone's talking about. He's he's opened up so much more intelligence for your everyday sort of non-university educated person that is that the exposure and the education just purely education wise on what he's done with you know food nutrition training med the whole stuff it's been you know he's it's been um for me almost they say the television won't be televised well uh, sorry the the revolution won't be terrorized it's, it's like he's he's got his own um he's riding his own wave but it's it's so unselfishness you know it's it's such a great uh knowledge foundation and base that he's building up for everyone it is is a brilliant um it's great to great to see i agree i just when you said socrates i just reached something off my wall because i have this uh in my pain cave or my garage gym where i am now and i just wanted to read this for all our listeners in case they've never heard it no man has the right to be an amateur in the matter of physical training it's a shame for a man to grow old without seeing the beauty and strength of which his body is capable that's a favorite that is an excellent quote too yeah that's one of my mantras um let's go back to the question so what's your ring walk or your hype song what's the one that gets you going um i'm i'm my musical taste is pretty broad spectrum but it, it's hard to go wrong with any tupac song that's pretty much you know appropriate to the occasion <laughs> um so you're a tupac not a biggie fan yeah more more so i mean respect you know respect to the the lyrical skills of biggie <laughs> but yeah tupac always spoke to me a lot more well you, you're coming from a, a hotbed of um you know west coast hip-hop so uh that's true. yeah book you've read more than once and why gates of fire uh well i'm gonna give you two for fiction gates of fire that was the spartan ring i thought uh pressfield did a better job than anyone at breaking down uh, and just kind of capturing the spartan spirit and mindset and ethos um but day-to-day -day practical stuff uh, the book of five rings by uh, miyamoto musashi was the best i listened to that on audio yeah so technically i haven't read that i should say i listened to that one on audio tape during multiple ultra marathons um and i like that one a lot just as far as a way to general structure for a way to live your life as a productive educated balanced dangerous human being i, I think it's second to none yeah I, I listen to a lot of my books when i'm either traveling or if uh, running as well so that is on my wish list so I'll, i might bump that up book of five rings i think you'll i think you'll find a lot of value in it yeah cool favorite film uh, well, the favorite thing I've seen recently that really, really got me was uh, a TV show called 1883. And it is the uh, prequel to Yellowstone, which is really popular right now. But uh, so technically not a movie, but that's the that's the last thing I watched where I was just like, what, like truly moved by it. And uh, it's just about the, uh, like the party of people moving west on the oregon trail which is something that's been done a million times before but i think they captured it was more realistic than any version i've seen before but i just the the drama and the characters and the story just i don't know it just blew me away what do you do when you start feeling down uh i just i remind my i tell myself remember who you are you know remember what you've been through to get here remember what you're capable of remember what you could you know the potential that you're capable of achieving and then i just go back to being productive 
like uh, when I'm depressed, when anything's happening, like I think the mindset that snaps me out of it the most is when I feel productive, not busy, not punishing myself, but actively adding value and production to my life and the world around me. Cool. What's your favorite method of recovery? Active, you know, for sure. Uh, rucking and swimming are my two favorite for sure. Spirit animal? Uh, it's always been the wolf. I'm not sure why. Just kind of, you know, they're awesome. I like them. And they're, uh, there's a duality there. You know, it's a beautiful, cooperative, intelligent pack animal. It's also just a ruthless predator. Mm. And probably, you know, like the wolf pack's the most dangerous thing out there in the woods for sure. Yeah. I'd love to, um, you know, have a glimpse of way back when, when we used to hunt with packs of wolves and understand. Yeah that connection and, and you know how we um, and I think that's one of the things that that really I like I, I'm missing like I want that connection with my food like a, a friend that I mentioned who's got the deer hunting license over here you know to go from field to fork in the same day you know to to honor the sacrifice of that animal's life to be able to feed and nourish uh, your family and, and be on that plate um, I, I would like you to just sort of touch on that for me if you can, because I think that's a very misunderstood element of hunting. A lot of people see it as, you know, they fully appreciate, you, you know, the, the, the hardship and the connection that you have to the animals that you hunt and bring back to, to feed on. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I should preface this by saying, uh, and the animal that dies by my arrow is that's the the luckiest most merciful death that's going to find out there if i shoot an elk with my arrow that's going to it's not it might not even know what happens you know it might hear a snap and kind of move a little bit and run away a little bit not really know and then it just gets they just kind of slowly sit down and you know what i mean the arrow is very merciful even more so like a, a well-placed arrow is more merciful than even a bullet so there's no shock wave there's no traumatic bang nothing you know the arrow just zips through and that's that uh if it's not my arrow. It's going to be a pack of wolves. It's going to be a disease. It's going to be a bear. It's going to be something else. So as far as the cruelty goes, you know, my arrow is a nice thing. Way nicer to let that animal live, breed, you know, reproduce, roam the mountains, and then one day be painlessly put down than have an animal that lives in a factory farm and is pumped full of stuff and lives in a cage and never sees sunlight, you know. Uh, as far as the connection to your food, yeah, you, you can't. There's no replacing that. Um that there's just something primal inside of us just you know some people may not like it or agree with it but we're hunters like you know we're omnivores sure we, we get hunters and gatherers but we're hunters and that's something that's been in us from the beginning we wouldn't be here without it and i know some people think it's no longer necessary because we have factory farms and all this stuff but i'd agree that it's more necessary than ever and the more disconnected we become from the world and from nature the easier it is to act like people who are disconnected from the world that they live on, you know, yeah. but even more so something that I feel even more profoundly for whatever reason, than being connected with my food is being able to provide meat to the people I care about uh, my family, my friends, you know, the people that I, I train with. Uh, I mean, yeah, they can, they, you know, they can walk into a supermarket and get their own food, but there's something about being able to provide that meat, you know, in the provenance of it, but there's just something primal in that, you know, being able to feed the people you care about and it, it helps to know that you can feed yourself too, you know? Well, it underpins, doesn't it? One of our basic survival um, needs, you know, the necessity that we need to be able to survive 
flourish and, and and stay alive is water and food and if you if you're able to provide that for yourself you know uh, in a situation where it's life or death then that's a fantastic tool to have in your armory yeah i'd agree what's your mantra when the going gets tough this is my time this is my time and i can't tell you how many Random people have been driving by and seeing me on the side of some road in the middle of nowhere, talking to myself, pointing at the ground right in front of me. But that's what I tell my, you know what I mean? I know this is my time. And the, the colder, the darker, the more it hurts, the deeper we go into those waters, the more my time it is, you know? And I'm not, go I'm not going anywhere. And like I said, I, I, I personify my, uh, my demons and my insecurities. And so it's, I feel... I feel uh, defiant in the face of that, you know, the idea that they, any doubts or anything would try to keep me from going where I'm meant to be. And so I let them know, you know what I mean? And it's always the fact that the weakest parts of yourself are the first parts to burn away when you put yourself in the fire. And so those voices are always the first ones to go anyway, you know. I think it's natural to have self-doubt, you know, especially if you're doing something for the first time or you're doing something that's, uh, you know, a lot bigger than what you've ever done. but the problem is if you start to believe that self-doubt and you have to fight back you know that you use the word defiant I, I i love it you know um on the on the recent mountain run that we dine like everything was screaming at me to stop and i, I fought back to um an interview with courtney dewalter and she, oh, yeah. and she said like this is why i signed up for that shit. Like I was, I'm meant to be in pain. I, I wanted this pain. And that's what I kept saying to myself, you know, you, you wanted this, you signed up for it. So you just got to, like you say, one step in front of the other. What's your favorite place in the USA? In the USA, uh, Washington, Washington state, uh, the Western half of the state, particularly. I would like to move up there before too long, but down the line, I think we'll end up there. But it's just, it's beautiful. I've always loved the Pacific Northwest. For, you know, it's a little different. The mountains here in California and, you know, like, a, yeah, they're beautiful. You know, Pine Mountains, big, everything's very wide and open and large, you know, makes it both challenging and difficult to hunt, you know, but uh, it's pretty. But once you move up into Oregon and up further into Washington, it's just, it's like those uh, misty, m magical forests that you see, you know, you saw in all the old, you know, and it's almost like New Zealand or something, you know what I mean? It's it's like they're technically rainforest. It's considered coastal rainforest, wow. but it's a lot of ferns and a lot of the trees just get giant. They get bigger and uh, everything just seems older and less touched. And then I like the overcast, the cold weather more than I like the hot, you know, hot, humid stuff down here. Um, and the air is just cleaner up there. It's it's the only so I, I travel a lot. I, I drive around a lot uh, Hunting and working and what whatnot, but that's the only state I went to by myself without you know any real connections or anything and was just like Yeah, I don't want to think of you know, if it was up to me I just wouldn't leave, you know, I was the only place to just truly call I've been to a lot of beautiful places a lot I'd be happy to live in That was the only one where I was just like man. I I, I could just stay and be good, you know Sounds beautiful Top bucket list pick. So this could either be something that you've done or something that you want to do. I already started. I just, I don't know if I'll get it done in my lifetime. I want to solo stock a wolf with my bow. I, I try one out in June. So every year I'm going to put in at least one hunt towards this. Could take 20 years, but it's pretty, I don't want to say impossible, but it's, uh, let's say I'll have my, my, uh, 
not just black belt, but my red belt, my coral belt in uh, bow hunting. If I can just by myself go out and stalk and get a shot on a wolf, but there's, they're smarter than we are. They're faster than we are. They're stronger. They, you know, their senses are a million times tuned up and it's their home world. So yeah. it's, it's pretty, I acknowledge that it's pretty much a, a futile, a futile pursuit, but I, nonetheless, I will get it done by hook or by crook one day. Somehow I will stalk and put an arrow in a wolf. Yeah. What a goal to have out far out smart the smartest hunter that there is potentially that's what i'm going for what's your favorite and least favorite exercise movements favorite would be the single arm barbell press least favorite which is to say favorite in a different way would probably be the bulgarian split squat <laughs> they're just lovely they're awesome for their impact and everything but my body is just like i mean it doesn't like i said this shit doesn't have currency it doesn't matter you know if it's if it's good for me it's getting done one way or the other but yeah. if you're just talking about purely what i am enjoying in the moment yeah i i hate slash love those but i love the one-arm barbell press that's just i think i don't understand why more people aren't doing movements like that so would is it as simple as like a strict barbell press but just purely with one hand yeah, just start with an empty bar. If that's too heavy, start with a dumbbell and build up. And once you're above, you know, 50, you know, it's barbell only weighs 45, but it's longer and harder to stabilize. So once you can get, you know, if you're pressing a dumbbell, it's a little heavier than that, then you should be fine with a barbell. Mm -hmm. Start empty. Um, start basic hypertrophy range on both sides and go from there. Add a little weight, little weight, little weight. But, um, and then once you're comfortable with that, if you want to look for more complexity, uh, with you know with corresponding gains i'd say start working into a proper bent press like an old-time strongman which if you're a grappler and you're listening to this i would recommend you start learning anyway because it's pretty relatively complex movement but once you have the skill sets it uh, or once you have the basic skills it provides a ton of carryover and strength to grappling judo jujitsu wrestling um but it's essentially you're turning what would otherwise be like a single arm dumbbell press into an entire full body movement that is, and you'll feel the entire, the entire upper quadrant of your body on that, on the, you know, the loaded side, you'll, you're going to feel activated in ways that you, uh, you have not imagined. And it's going to light up a bunch of little muscles and stabilizers in places you didn't even know you had. Yeah. I, um, I'm definitely going to get on that. That sounds like the, the single arm press sounds like an interesting thing to get involved in. Oh yeah. It's great. Favorite sport. Sport. Yeah. Favorite sport. Uh, jujitsu count or yeah. MMA technique. I guess MMA would be jujitsu is cool, but MMA it, like I don't, MMA is the only thing I watch really. I watch some jujitsu, the bigger stuff, but mm -hmm. uh, mostly just MMA. I'm not as, not as up on it now as I used to be, but uh I watch most of the big cards. Uh, I don't watch normal sports. I just, I played, all, I mean, everything except baseball growing up, but I just never, uh, I just, I, you know, so many hours in the day. Oh, I play, hey, I played soccer. Uh, you said you played, you played football. I was on the, on the uh, district six Olympic development team out here. So I, I, I played competitive for most of my childhood. I love soccer. Mm. What position? Right. Uh, right wing. Right. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Fast, lots of assists, decent number of goals. Nice. There's no better feeling than scoring a goal, eh? No, but I, yeah. So I like I set records with assists just from you know lots of cross, you know whipping crosses in. Yeah. But I, I was always like a you know like the third maybe third leading goal scorer or something. But I really just like setting up uh, you know like threading threading the needle through a lot of defenses in different ways. So, uh, but yeah, nothing like scoring a goal. Cool. What advice would you give to a younger you? 
Um, I should start by saying I wouldn't change anything. I, I wouldn't be who I am without the exact path that I walked, which was horrible. I mean, I've seen and quite frankly done horrible things to get here, but uh, we are who we are, you know, and there's, there's no, there's no way I take I cut away any piece of myself and I still remain the same. So I have to find a way to be grateful for who I am and where I'm at. But, uh, so, you know, it's hard to give myself any advice that might alter that path, but I just say, you know, keep going. You're going to be all right. You'll be all right. Yeah. Solid advice. Future plans. What's in the pipeline for yourself? I'm not sure. So right now it's bear hunting season. I'm heading out uh, a little, about a week. Yeah. Yeah. But in, in a week for a solid week up in Idaho, bear hunting. So that's the immediate focus. Um, as far as athletic goals, I really don't have, I haven't found the next thing yet. It's been about six months since I did the deadlift ultra marathon and I'm starting to feel the itch for something similar. Um, I'm considering like a run between and like essentially an unsupported solo run between, you know, like two different cities um, across some pretty, pretty broken terrain, you know, pretty hilly terrain at elevation. Uh, out here in California. I was going to be doing that last year, and then there were a bunch of fires in the area. So I'm thinking about going back to that. I'm also com contemplating maybe like a strongman competition or something. Because, uh, I mean, I'm 5'11". Right now I'm like 190. Normally I'm like 180. And uh, so it's like I'd be about 19 or 20 pounds below the smallest weight class they have. But that'd still be fine. You know, 181 and a 200-pound weight class, I think I'd still perform pretty well, yeah. even though I've never done strongman stuff before. Hmm. And when I say, well, I mean, relative to, you know, relative. Um, so maybe there may be that. So cross country run, a, uh, maybe a strongman competition, but I'm mostly pretty, pretty focused on hunting bear right now. And then, you know, just doing the wild hunt stuff, working with my athletes for them. But it, it, I tend to be pretty impulsive. Something will come up for long and I'll, I'll jump on it. James, if there's people listening to this that want to find more about you, or come and work on your plan or, or, you know, get some more details on it. Shout out all your different handles. Where can they come and find that information? Yeah, yeah. So we're on uh, Instagram mostly, but all social media, Facebook, and I think technically there's a TikTok, but uh, uh, mostly Instagram and YouTube, just Wild Hunt Conditioning. And uh, on both, you'll find links to our website, just our Shopify page, Wild Hunt Conditioning. And uh we have programs. We have the Dub Method program we were talking about for sale on there. And uh, we also have the blue, what I call the Blueprint program, which is just the Blueprint. Literally, I just recreated the Blueprint that I recorded and recreated the Blueprint that I used to train for the Deadlift Ultra Marathon. And that's really pretty reflective of wild hunt training in general. If you get in there, you're going to see uh, a well-balanced program to build strength, durability, endurance, and athleticism all simultaneously. Um, I don't believe I'm tooting my horn when I say it is the premier program on the market for building strength and endurance both. I have not personally seen anything in my research that even comes close. Um, and then we also have a gra basic grappling uh, grappling strength program, like for introductory level people, people that are just getting into grappling. Um, and then coming soon, we have a... Uh, a different grappling program. I believe we'll be calling it the Milo program. That's a little more advanced for people that are at least a little bit more advanced in lifting or in jujitsu, as well as something called old man grease, which is just going to be a simple micro program. I'm going to put up for like nine bucks. It's not going to be anything crazy. And it's 10 to 15 minutes a day to prehab joint health program. It's like you wake up, do 10 minutes, these exercises Monday through Friday, 
take the weekend off and you get to walk around, whether you're an athlete, an older man, you're just life's getting caught, catching up with you, whatever it is, get to walk around your life with, a, you know, pain-free, stronger, better mobility. So anyway, got programs of all sorts. Uh, we take pride in the fact that these programs are more complete and uh, more functional and effective than the vast majority of what you're going to find out there. So uh, I think if anyone, that sounds good to anyone, they should come check them out. Yeah, great stuff. James, I'd love you if you'd be so kind to sign us out this episode with the um, story or the history behind the pedestrians. The You know, as this is a transatlantic episode with uh, okay. yourself over there in America and me here yeah. in the UK, if you could just give us your, uh, your take on that pedestrian race. Well, the, the pedestrians in general is interesting, but yeah, that the particular race, there was... So I, I wrote a post up at night. I, I, I wrote the battle between uh, the or the ultra marathon battle between the UK and Britain, or I'm sorry, the UK and the US. But really, all it was was like it was like the equivalent of like uh, old school athlete shit talking. And <laughs> so it was like there was like the top guys at the time. Uh, Britain actually had been leading the way for a while, and uh, in these like uh, ultra marathon races, some of them were like 24 hour races, some of them were six day races. That was the big craze. Yo, sorry about that. Battery crapped out on me. No so, worries. Anyway, uh, so yeah, there was Britain had been leading the way in the pedestrian, uh, the pedestrians or the ultra marathon running uh, sport at the time, and there were two guys particularly uh, out of uh, America that had been kind of competing with each other, and one of them went over and did a uh, a race in Britain, and they did it in like an indoor arena with like a wooden track and so these guys it was just brutal on their feet the whole time and uh i think what like if you ask me a big factor was that the uh the british guy wore uh he stayed in his formal attire for longer so at the time like guys would do they would do like the first couple laps in like a hat and you know what i mean whatever like looking all formal and then they'd like get down to business or whatever and strip down and you know what i mean and he kept like his formal shoes on longer. And then so it was like by 60 something, I think it was 61 miles in his feet were just, he was just literally just leaving like blood trails around the track. And, uh, and the American guy was holding up a little bit better. So uh, the American guy ended up winning, but I think he went back. I need to update myself on this, but I think he went back and got his ass kicked by someone else right after. But uh, 
it was interesting mostly because these guys were just there was just rampant ped use and it was like super open and so these guys were doing cocaine they were pop like sniffing like you know poppers and nitroglycerin and doing all this crazy shit to stay awake and just keep going you know what i mean and it got to the point like some of the times it was like they didn't even want it and their trainers were just like forcing it on them and <laughs> they're just like you know like oh dude i don't, I don't even no no oh, all right here we go you know so uh, it got pretty crazy and a lot of these races uh stuff happened and then because the racers and and some of them were doing outdoor races accompanied by like primitive automobiles and just breathing in like just toxic smoke they started hallucinating even worse than they otherwise would and like there were weird cases like aliens and you know swamp lights and weird stuff that people saw and so we don't know how much is uh ultra ultra running hallucinations how much is drugs and how much is breathing exhaust but it was uh it was not uh they tried to make it a gentleman's sport in the day and conversely it was pretty brutal thank you for sharing that it, it reminds me of um when you talk about the gentleman aspect of it have you ever heard of captain matthew webb no maybe vaguely who's that so he was the first person to swing swim the english channel so from england uh, over to france i heard ross edley talking about him once yeah yeah, yeah. he was the guy that he covered himself in goose and duck fat for he, he wore a woolen uh, wetsuit to keep him warm and he was drinking whiskey as his fuel. Um, That's right. But as he crossed, it because it was ungentlemanly to do front call, he swam the whole thing breaststroke. <laughs> I, I should do a write-up on that. I'll tell you, if I, if, I, if I get the time to do that soon, I'll tag you if I remember. <laughs> That'd be a good one, though. James, look, I'm really grateful for you giving up your time and coming to join us on the Chasing Discomfort podcast. Your story is nothing short and inspirational um your your method your belief your mindset is something to be very admired um i appreciate you brother thank you so much for your time and um yeah thank you for coming on you too brother thanks for having me on